0: Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Conor Guerra. Will, are you sitting down? Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure I, I can look at you. I can see this. By the way, go subscribe to our YouTube channel, Saturday Down South on YouTube, if you want to watch every single episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, all of our interviews and more. I ask that question because I don't like to say this, but I have to. It's week seven and the regular season is at its unofficial midway point and i don't like that one bit i'm not one that looks forward to midseason awards oh we're already half over with this with this specific season or you know we've already reached this point no 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 that's not the type of milestone that i celebrate i hope i didn't scare anyone i hope i didn't make anyone drive off the road by saying we're at the halfway point of the season but we just need to know because if you're like, ah, oh, you know, my next two Saturdays, I'm doing this, this, and this. No pumpkin patch Saturdays are in the forecast, okay? That is That is yeah. not the case. We need to appreciate each and every Saturday that we have for the rest of the season. Am I laying it on a little bit thick here or am I well within my rights to point out that we don't get a ton of these and we need to appreciate this 1.5 speed that the fall operates on?
1: Yeah, I think I'm even going to take it a step further, which is this is the last year of standard issue college football. Whatever Mm. in the absolute hell is going to happen last year or next year, we don't know what that's going to be. All we know is right now. So at the end of the day, by the time next year comes around, I mean, at this point last year, I mean, did we think that Oregon and Washington would be in the Big Ten? Probably not, you know, we'd seen USC, UCLA, but that was back when, you know, they had the TV deal on the table and it was seen. I mean, every part of that was seen as shocking. So yeah, I mean, the playoff is obviously expanding. Conferences are kind of in a flux. So this is kind of the last year of, you know, the semblance of your mama and daddy's SEC because everything past this is going to be the new, like the AD of the SEC. For many people, the good old days, we
0: have half a season left of the good old days, so appreciate them. That's 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 all. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but we, we need to appreciate each and every weekend that we have moving forward. Great show lined up. Neil Blackman is going to join us in a little bit to talk all things Florida ahead of what feels like a really pivotal stretch for the future of just what Billy Napier is trying to rebuild in that entire process. Neil had a great, great piece that I mentioned on the recap pod the other day. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to end with some lad of the week, but week seven, As I mentioned, it is here. Let's start with Arkansas and Alabama. Alabama Alabama's number 11 in the country. They are 19.5-point favorites. The over-under I have for this one, Will. Three second-half passing yards for Jalen Milrow. Three. Three. We're going to set the bar high. Real high. Just three. That's what he had in this game last year, which... If you recall, he came in for the injured Bryce Young, did not start this game, came in, I think it was, I can't remember what minute mark it was in the second quarter, but replaced Bryce Young in this game. He was one of four for three passing yards in the second half, a game that Alabama won a game that Alabama won in part because of the 77-yard run that he had on 3rd and 15 deep in his own territory. That changed the game because Arkansas was coming back. They would have gotten the ball back down 28-23, to and you just never know with a guy in that spot, his first real meaningful reps, how he would have responded with the deficit. But instead, that led to a touchdown. Bama didn't have to throw in the second half. I remember Marler texting me that night, and he said, do you realize that Jalen Milrow was one of four for three passing yards in the second half of that game? And I thought, Marler, did you get into the whiskey early? Did, is what, what are we doing here? Where, where did you get that stat? Because there's no way that's true. I watched Jalen Milrow take over that game, make the de- defining play that day in Fayetteville. You cannot possibly be right. But he was. And I was the drunken fool. Maybe I got into the whiskey a little bit early and I was looking at that wrong. No, that's right. Clearly, Alabama did not want Jalen Milrow throwing downfield last year against the worst passing defense in America. That group was so bad on the back end and they didn't care. This year and really last week, though, we saw Tommy Reese be willing to say, "We'll, we'll, we'll stretch the field if we see a matchup we like, single coverage, We will take that chance. We like what we have with Jermaine Burton on the outside and single coverage against these A&M corners. Now the question is what happens if Arkansas comes out playing a lot more zone? Maybe they aim to keep everything in front of them. The 425 that Travis Williams likes to be able to run? Does that confuse Jalen Miller? I don't know. I think Tommy Reese would yes. say.
1: <laughs> but then <probably>. what? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I will tell you almost certainly yes. I was about to say it feels like Jalen Miller is some kind of an agent from Greg Sankey to show how, like, Poorly, Alabama can play while still winning pretty convincingly. It's like things were too boring for a while in the West, and so Sankey like pushed the Buffalo Wild Wings button, sent in Jalen Milrow, and now every Bama game. I mean, to be fair, some of those games were like that last year, but now it's like every drop back is electric. But he still wins, and so it's like how it's like the the joke about the NFL script. It's like how will the script end in Alabama winning today? Oh yes, okay, one for one for four three passing yards and a dominating effort. Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think maybe the offensive line has been a little bit more of the Buffalo Wild Wings come down to earth <laughs> units over the course of the last yeah. couple of years, probably even more so than Milro. But yeah, I think the the way that he played last week has a lot of people feeling like, okay, turn the corner. Maybe this is going to be the type of guy that you can trust week in, week out. And I, I don't know. I, I think that Alabama probably is going to have a lot more of a ground and pound type focus in this one. Hogs have been all right against the run, but they haven't been at the level of a team like a and which, as we saw, like Bama could not run the football against a and I wonder how they respond coming off of that big emotional win, a win that Nick Saban said that was about as mistake filled as any win that he's had at, at Alabama. It's an 11 a.m. local kick in Tuscaloosa. Your three-score favorite against a team that Nick Saban has never lost to since he's been there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Players on this team probably don't have any recollection whatsoever of 2006 Bama losing to Arkansas. I look, even Arkansas fans, a lot of Arkansas fans will be like, "Yeah, there's not a whole lot, not a whole lot of recent memories that, that feel very good in that matchup." Of all the annual matchups in the SEC, this actually has the longest running streak which is crazy to think about. So I think if you if you ask the average person, they'd say like, oh, it's probably like Georgia Vandy or Bama Mississippi State or, or something like that. Oh, no, we know the last time Vandy, Vandy beat Georgia. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the very, very true. Um, shout out, you're one of the Kirby Smart Air. That's not going to be the last reference to that game on this podcast. But when there's no longer Tennessee Bama and that drought, you know, that's mm-hmm. – and Mississippi State's win against Bama came 2007, Sylvester Croom. Arkansas is the only West team who has not beat Nick Saban at Bama. And now it's a two and four team who has not beat a power five team this year, has obvious weaknesses on the offensive line that we have talked about ad nauseum. Well, I'm going to admit something here. I've been wrong about Arkansas each of their last four games in terms of whether or not they would cover the spread. So fade, if you will take this for what it is. I think Bama struggles to put its foot on the gas in this game. Maybe it's a game that Bama's not trailing, but they can never for whatever reason just make it a three-score game and run away with it. And It kind of has to feel like more of a grinded-out type outcome for them. Maybe Arkansas goes back to the drawing board offensively with Dan Enos. Maybe he listens to some of those email suggestions that he was getting and responding to. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe he splits five receivers outside, maybe go empty protection. Some might think that's kind of counterintuitive with a team that can't really protect, but their backs can't protect anyways. And I think they need some quick hitting options for KJ. Turn Rocket Sanders back into the receiver that he was in high school. I don't know. Maybe that's the option. If Bama's DBs can blow up plays and get around those big Arkansas receivers on the outside like and they they can do that in the flat, all right, fine. But at least that's not a negative play wherein KJ is just getting demolished by Dallas Turner or something like that or Chris Braswell or whoever. But I, I think that there was one time last week where that reality really sunk in for KJ or maybe I'm reading too much into body language I'm curious if you if you picked up on this or if somebody listening to this picked up on this there was one time in the fourth quarter against Ole Miss where KJ got sacked and two Arkansas offensive linemen come over to him and they come over to you know try and lift him up that's your captain that's your guy KJ was just like nah man I'll I'll just get up myself what's (laughs) oh now you go help me all right where where were these hands when he was supposed to be blocking (laughs) Six seconds ago would have been great. Would have appreciated more help and energy then. Your I hands can't...
1: extend from your body. I have yet to see this. Hold on, we can work <laughs> with that.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks, guy. R- really appreciate uh, all all the effort that you're putting in right now. I don't, I don't want to say that KJ is totally bailed on this offense, this offensive line, the 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 surrounding circumstances that have not done him any favors. But if that frustration is not at a high level, I'd be very surprised. And if they don't make some significant changes to the offense, we know it's going to be a really lopsided matchup. Here's a stat for you, And this plays into Bama as well. The three power of five teams who have allowed the most sacks this season, Colorado 31. Makes sense. Bama, makes, makes a lot of sense. If you watch Shadour Sanders, yeah, that dude has been running for his life for the majority
1: of the year. A lot of dropbacks, though. I'll give him credit. He is leading the nation in passing, so at least there's lots of attempts. Anyway. I'll take
0: it, man. There are a lot of of teams in the SEC that would love to have a Shadur Sanders. Who who knows? I mean, even a team like Bama would probably be doing some great things with Shadur Sanders. Bama's allowed 26 sacks. They're second. Mm -hmm. Colorado's the only team ahead of them. And then Arkansas has allowed 23. So, a lot of sacks in this one. Would expect a lot of that. These offensive coordinators need some quick hitting routes or screens or just something to prevent their quarterbacks from taking massive, massive hits. I'm going to reluctantly pick Arkansas to cover the spread. I'm going to say Bama wins this 28-17. to 17, And it just doesn't really feel like the
1: turn-the-corner Bama that many expected coming off of the A&M game. I'm uh, so glad that you had those stats ready because I started to ask you, are these the worst two lines in the SEC? And that felt disrespectful. You know, we have some definitely worse teams than these two te- Well, Arkansas, given the week. But it's funny because, as we've discussed for both of these teams, they have probably the two hardest quarterbacks to sack. Like, while I will say Milrow creates some sacks, but he's pretty hard to tackle, I'll at least say. So it's, it's kind of shocking to me that they're both, you know, all the way up there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, two teams that have just completely – Hung their hat on offensive, play, offensive line play for the last, geez, 10, 15 years for both of these guys. I mean, going, I would say Arkansas is right there with Alabama in terms of, you know, dudes on the offensive line just historically. So, yeah, I think um, this has been a shocker for both. Um, but, yeah, I, I think both things can be true. I think that Bama did show me a lot last week. And, you know, who, who am I an LSU fan to discount, you know, sleepily walking into Ar- or walking into the Arkansas game and just getting punched in the mouth? Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they'll win. And that's what matters. I, I could see it getting out of hand. But for the for that exact reason, when they this is a good opportunity for Alabama to truly kind of put it all together. Um, because like you talked about Mississippi State they didn't really open up the whole playbook. It was kind of just on cruise control, which turned out that they they had to learn that. Uh, They had to learn how to take those chances. Shout out James Franklin in a bigger game, which is not usually what you want to do. But against Arkansas, you know, you do have those liabilities at DB. So, you know, if you're a Bama fan, you're really hoping that they take to the air a little bit and finally get that confidence under Monroe, not to just Jermaine Burton. But I say all that to say with the kind of clunkiness, the penalties, the offensive line play and just Jalen Monroe existing, probably not going to be a comfy blowout, even if it feels like one. I don't know that
0: Arkansas is as bad as what the four-game losing streak would suggest. Like, And and I I say this from this perspective. I think they have a very obvious weakness that in today's age of college football, with the scheme that they play, can be taken advantage of. And that's why it has been an uphill climb. So I, I, I acknowledge that. But if you actually kind of break down the rest of their team and the areas where you're like, oh, they're not bad there. Okay, they, don't know. they have guys that make plays in the defensive line. That's been pretty good. Okay, they've, they haven't been a total dumpster fire defending the pass, and they still allow the occasional chunk play. But you can kind of break down the other non-offensive line elements of this team and say, you know what? Maybe this is actually going to keep them in this game. And maybe if Alabama is unable to get home, and for whatever reason Arkansas does make that necessary tweak perhaps this is just a game in which we're left kind of going, huh? So this wasn't really about Alabama all of a sudden looking like it's a top five team capable of just going eight, no, and sec play and route to, you know, in, in route to a West title or something like that. I, I just have a feeling that we'll left, we'll be left saying that. And we'll be like, once again, ah, KJ just came up short, just not enough help around him. Weren't able to really make things work at the end, but just not necessarily a game that Alabama dominates from start to finish against an Arkansas team. That's obviously right now, I would think pretty desperate. I, I would hope at this point.
1: Yeah. Bye I is, mean, losing that old Miss game is, yeah. Losing that old Miss game was so tough. Cause they really like should have won that one. Not as in like they're a better team than Ole Miss, but in terms of just game flow and like, the, the arc of the team is like, okay, if you win that Ole Miss game, you can just get your feet under you, and you feel like, okay, even if we lose to Alabama, back after our schedule it's a lot easier. Like, da-da-da. Like, losing that is such a backbreaker. I definitely think that – I mean, I don't think this will be the first year they beat Alabama under Saban. I, I think like that – maybe I'll just jinx them, and they will, which would be hilarious. I'll take it. um But, you know, kind of going past the game, if we assume this is an L. Man, this back part of their schedule is about to get funny because there are some teams that – they really, I mean, after Alabama, there's some teams that you really could see them beating. Mississippi State, it's at Florida so that, you know, the, the Ben Hill Griffin Stadium factor does matter. But you play Auburn, you play FIU, and then you play Mizzou, as they often do in one of the weirder rivalries games in the SEC. So this, the, the, from this game kind of past this, starting right now, this Arkansas season it could get very strange. Because if they're bought in, they have some winnable games coming up. If they're not, they could lose some games in the most embarrassing ways imaginable. Exactly.
0: This can turn into four and eight pretty easily. It could also with a close game against Alabama be the selling point that Sam Pittman needs to say, don't give up on this. I know it's cliche to say, oh, we're two plays away from winning this game, two plays away from winning that game. But there is legitimate buy-in that matters when it comes to keeping a team together at this crucial point of the year when that might not get him jazzed up to go play. And another Liberty Bowl. That might not be the most motivating factor, but just to get some good vibes back, I think Arkansas needs to make this a 60 minute game and just to feel like it is heading in the right direction or not heading towards a total collapse. Georgia, Vandy. Less close. Georgia's a 31 and a half point favorite in this one, Will. The over under. It's my default. I do this all the time. I do it in the crystal ball series. Whenever I see a potential blowout opportunity, I always go to the backup quarterback. And that's where my mindset is. The over-under I have is eight pass attempts for Brock Vandegriff. His first touchdown pass against FBS competition last week. Mm -hmm. Nice to be able to see that career high, seven pass attempts against Kentucky, maybe another career high in pass attempts this week. That would be the aforementioned eight. I think
1: ideally for Georgia, I will say the caveat of, Kentucky's third string and is third string. Not exactly FPS competition, but the name of the shirt matters. So we're going to call it that. We're going to count it. You know what?
0: We're <laughs> going to count. Vandy's got an, a, a few dudes here and there, as I continue to say, despite their losses piling up, that you would say, all right, that guy, that, that guy belongs. That guy belongs on an SEC field. I continue to bang the drum for CJ Taylor. He could make some big-time plays in this game, and Georgia fans could think, that guy could probably play On our team. I think he's good enough to be able to do that. But yeah, I think we'll see a lot of Brock Vandegrift, if I had to guess. I would love to see a whole half of him. And Georgia fans might push back and say, oh, what about Gunnar Stockton? You want to be able to see him involved as well? I get that. But I think you could, if you're Kirby Smart, not necessarily go into this one, assuming that you're going to play him for an entire half, but at least have that game script ready. To say, what if it is... 45 to nothing at halftime. We cannot roll that out with these two teams. We just cannot give Brock Vandegrift a script. See how he game plans. See how he executes it. Give him a 10 play script or something like that. See what you have in him. The guy's got 20 career pass attempts. He needs reps. He's a draft eligible quarterback. You you need Hmm. to see what you have in him. I, I thought that they did a better job of that with Carson Beck last year when he was the backup. He got to throw 35 passes. I go back to the experience with Justin Fields in 2018, wherein I think Kirby learned how not to approach QB2 when he's really talented. And I think there are lessons to be learned for that, that you can apply to Brock Vandergriff in a game like this. If that sounds disrespectful to Vandy, I'd say, you know what, Vandy? Vandy fans listening to this, let's have your team stay within 23 points at Georgia for the first time in seven years. Then we'll talk. Okay, or just stay within 15 points of a power five team this year, and then we'll talk because that hasn't happened yet. After Georgia lost that game that you brought up before 2016, lost that game to Vandy year one. Another reason why we don't judge year one head coaches on the, on this show. It's not, I mean, not a thing that we like to do. These are your Vandy results against Georgia. 2017, Georgia won that one 45 to 14. 2018, 41 to 13. 2019, 30 to 6. 2020, they didn't play. COVID. 2021, Mm -hmm. Georgia 62, Vandy Zippo. 2022, Georgia 55, Vandy Zero. Well, Vandy's last touchdown against Georgia was five years ago, and it was a run with two seconds left in a 41 to 6 game.
1: Midway through the last presidential. Administration. Yeah, I mean that should be the over under. It's like one point for Vandy because that's an improvement. I mean you can't do worse than sixty two to zero. Point five
0: touchdowns. That's that. Point that five. should probably be the over under yeah. at this point. Now, not really sure that this this year is is when that changes, but I don't know. Maybe Georgia. The the slow starts. Those issues resurface. This is a game that Carson Beck needs to play deep into the third quarter. I, probably not. Just give me all the Brock Vandegrift. All the Brock Vandegrift beard. Throws beard, whatever, same thing. Georgia forty-two, yeah. Vandy six via two field goals. Do You got thoughts on this one, Will,
1: or no? <laughs> no, I mean that's that's pretty much it. I just I, there's nothing else to say. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be tough for him. I I think that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah, I can I can just see um I I'm blanking on what's what's Vandy's head coach's name. You you said
0: Clark Lee earlier, didn't you? Oh no, no, I sure was, did, buddy.
1: I think we were talking about that offline or something like that. Sorry. I, yes. I, I, I literally just said his name. Clark Lee. I'm imagining a shot of Clark Lee just clapping his hands on the sideline as Vandy kicks a field goal, like midway through the third quarter down like 40 points. <laughs> That's my take. Yeah. I look, I hope AJ Swan
0: is back healthy, not to hate on Ken Seals or anything. And if he is back healthy and if he's available and if Clark Lee is turning to Ken Seals consistently, I I'm, I'm long-term worried and short-term worried about Clark Lee managing quarterbacks at Vandy. And the way they did it last year with the, the Mike Wright thing, Tennessee Hill's not playing. It's just weird. Very, very weird BS. Yes, I would not expect Vandy, uh, any Vandy quarterback, uh, maybe even dating back to Jay Cutler, to have a chance in this one. A&M, number 19, Tennessee. Tennessee's a three-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under I have, 230 Tennessee rushing yards. It's a lot getting less serious with these over-unders just because I'd rather just bring up a meaningful stat than actually come up with something that people can fake bet on. Um, That's the season average for Tennessee. 230 rushing yards. 6.18 yards per carry is second in the country. Will, do you know who is first in the
1: country in yards per carry? In yards per carry? Um, Man, that's a tough one. It has to be... it's, It's not LSU, is it? It's not LSU. It's not a bad
0: guess. There is a team that is doing it at a very high level who is undefeated, who has a big game. Michigan. Not a bad guess. You're right. It is a top 10 team. It is not Michigan. Last guess. Penn State. No, that's a terrible guess because they don't play offense. They do play. Their their rushing attack is good. I'll give them credit for that. I don't stretch the field. Um, James Franklin, again, don't ask about that. Oregon. Oregon oh of course Knicks. it's Oregon
1: yeah their stats are nasty right now especially after like that beat down against Colorado man that completely like all their it was like 10 yards a touch that whole game yeah yes that that might have skewed things a little bit think that
0: might be a little bit tougher to do against Washington that game's gonna be awesome this weekend you know who suddenly has a top 10 run defense in basically every metric top 10 run defense A M. Yeah. Hmm. yeah they were it looked like it last week for sure they did they they have greatly improved in that area. They went from bottom ten in the country last year to top ten in the country this year. That usually does not happen. We talked about the five stars that they have on that defensive line. Those guys playing really, really well despite the fact that they picked up that second loss Edwin cooper Edron Cooper is having the best year that nobody is talking about in the SEC. he's been. Awesome. He has 12 TFLs. He leads the SEC in that stat. A&M hasn't let up a rushing touchdown since week one against New Mexico. That's, that's crazy. You talked about last week. Bama had 23 rushing yards on 26 carries. Arkansas the week before that, 42 rushing yards on 39 carries. Even if you want to do the sack-adjusted rushing yards, that group has still been really good up front. Tennessee actually struggled against the only decent run defense that it faced at Florida. 100 rushing yards in that game, at least 220 against everybody else. So you could look at all those things and you could say, hmm, maybe AM could go into Nealon, pull off the upset, bounce back week for the Aggies. Jimbo Fisher, nobody's laughing at him this week. I'm going to go in the total opposite direction of that because of the timing of this game, which I think is important. AM is coming off of three consecutive SEC West matchups. And they have pretty much—they've pretty much dominated that battle with their defensive line. I, I think, at least, against a Tennessee team that is fresh off a of bye, I think that offensive line makes a statement, and the Aggies struggle to stop that multifaceted rushing attack that the Vols have. I don't think Joe Milton attempts more than twenty-five passes, which might sound weird considering what we've seen at times from this A&M secondary. They struggled against Miami. They struggled against Bama covering Jermaine Burton. But I think Tennessee goes ground heavy. And then it's the occasional deep shot to Squirrel White, Dante Thornton, who, by the way, that guy, speaking of Oregon, only one catch of 20 yards all year. I think he gets his first big play. This is a breakout game of sorts for him. The combination of that, plus Tennessee's loaded defensive front, I think they get after Max Johnson, much like Bama did in the second half last week. I think there's a blowout, Will. I, I, I think this is a blowout for Tennessee. I'm going Tennessee 35, AM 14.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the thing that's so kind of disappointing about this AM team is that the thing that I felt good about going into the Bama game, which was Max Johnson, connection with the receivers, you know, like just offensive consistency, uh, like kind of belief in self belief, like ability to show up for that big game that I thought that Max Johnson would be able to bring. I think he did the exact opposite. I think taking that safety was, I mean, it pretty clearly lost some of the game to me. Even. Let's say he doesn't take the safety and they still get to go down the field. They're at least playing to tie the game as they were last year. And, the, you know, they weren't really on the same page at the goal line, but they ended up kicking a field goal, which made it look even more lopsided than it was. So, yeah, I think that after I've kind of bought stock in Max Johnson, it would be kind of a fool's errand to expect him to do the same thing against a Tennessee team that has a better – should have a better downfield passing attack than Alabama. Like, honestly – he made Jalen Milro look like Good Joe Milton last week. <laughs> like it was just, it was like Bazooka Joe. Like it was like wide open. Jermaine Burton, ah ah, like taking the deep shots, and like they obviously couldn't stop Jermaine Burton. So if you talk about, I mean, I, I we just don't even know how good Jermaine Burton is at this point in his career. I'm not trying to be. I just have no idea. I mean, I think, think I, put I a, think I know. I think I know how. Doing
0: <laughs> doing I'll save that for a different discussion, though. <laughs>
1: I mean, I don't want to like dump on the kid after he just had like clearly the best game of his career, but I think Tennessee has better receivers than him. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be too like shocking about that. But yeah, I think that even without Brew McCoy, right? Like Tennessee has yep. these guys that are deep threats and that's what A&M has struggled with. So yeah, to your point now, this could be a very classic dumb Josh Heupel game where you just keeps trying to run the ball against AM's defense. Um but yeah like that's what I was going to say is you would you would worry about AM's run defense against Jalen Milro, but they were awesome. Like they were caving in the pocket every play. Um and again you would you would worry that worry you would think that was a positive against a guy like Bazooka Joe, who once he starts getting pressure does not have this capability that Jalen Milro does who becomes a scared automaton robot who just starts hucking the ball at different directions. But because of this offense being so vertical, those DBs so being so barbecue chicken, it being at home for Tennessee, um, and then at the same time, like I just kind of feel like Max Johnson's a little bit of a liability right now. I think that he'll give you a couple of turnovers. He doesn't seem to have learned from these like weird, bad turnovers, you know, over his career. And so that's the one thing that you would think like Tennessee has a problem with, but at home – you would just rather take your team than the other team, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think Tennessee wins this
0: one. Well, do you know who ranks 14th in the SEC in passing plays of 20 yards? Is it A&M? It's Joe Miller. Is it
1: Tennessee? It's no, Joe. no way, man. And you know what's crazy about that, too? If you look at that Florida game, you know, that's what they were doing successfully and nothing else. It was just like, if you took away those couple of plays, they got completely blown out. The, the final score, that was so not indicative of how it was because of the Brew McCoy play and the other one. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's tough because it makes no sense. That head coach and that quarterback, Like you think they would at least get their deep shots figured out. And hopefully, maybe for them, A&M is the team to figure that out against.
0: It might be. It's certainly possible. I, I think that they will hit on a couple of those deep shots in this game. I, I think it'll be there. But it's it's a reminder that deep ball accuracy and arm strength can be two very different things. I think
1: Henan Hooker yeah.
0: Yeah, has deep ball accuracy. For what he lacks in arm strength, he makes up for. I think Joe Milton, the opposite is true. And, and I think that we have seen that played out. Again, the sample size is a little bit small. It's still only five games. Kind of wait and see the way that it plays out as he develops chemistry with these receivers. Brew McCoy wasn't necessarily the vertical threat in the same way that a Ramel Keaton, a Squirrel White, a Dante Thornton, those guys are, but somebody mm-hmm. that's so valuable to that team. and I am interested to see the way that that it plays out, but I just have a feeling like balls come out ready to go, ready to go. I thought this one was going to be a blowout dating back to fir- when I first looked at the matchup in like late July. And I think this still sets up well for a convincing Tennessee win. And a lot of people clowning on Jimbo Fisher after I fully anticipate that. All right, well. Florida, South Carolina, South Carolina is a two and a half point favorite. The over under I have is seven and a half hours of sleep on average for each Florida player on Wednesday night. Okay. Like, okay. I got a point. Billy Dapier said ahead of South Carolina that the Gators are, they're, they're making some travel adjustments to what they have done so far this season. So far since he has been in Gainesville, Probably trying to address their issues away from the swamp. Kevin Brockway had this. Napier said that those adjustments will include getting to Columbia a little bit earlier on Friday, getting to the stadium a little bit earlier on Saturday, and wait for it. Putting an emphasis on sleep on Wednesday night. Mm. By the time people are listening to this, rest assured, Florida players will have hit the over on seven and a half hours of sleep. They will be in much better shape to take on South Carolina on Saturday. Uh, Yeah, because they're sleep Wednesday night. That's what did it for them. So good for them. Hopefully everybody is well rested. Let's go. You know what? Let's go for eight and a half. Why not even seven and a half. Let's
1: set the over under at eight and a half hours sleep Mm -hmm. for all of them. You got to change the shoes. We're talking about sleeping cap candle booties fully honk shoeing in their honk shoe era are you a white noise guy when you sleep i play podcasts do you play this one um sometimes and then i'll start talking to myself in my dreams so i try to not that's fair yeah i don't blame you
0: if you're if you're one of those people that plays this while you sleep just know that i am implementing you with all of the knowledge you could possibly ever want and i hope that the sound of my voice isn't too loud Turn me down a little bit. Lower, we'll, we'll lower the volume for those for the podcast while I sleep type crowd. Maybe Florida players listening to this podcast while they sleep. Look, um, you got to do something. You do some ASMR,
1: Connor? Let's not. Let's never do that. Um, <laughs> I just not thought my... to myself how many people I have woken up in the middle of the night with my laugh, and I would like to apologize for all of you right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't. It's also waking up the kids, too. You, you oh. worry about that. When you wake up the kids, oh. that's when
0: you should really feel bad. That one's tough, really, really tough. Florida away from the swamp. We've talked about it. I decided to dig into it a lot more. Um, I did a pretty deep dive into this, the the issues that they have had away from Gainesville. And by deep, I mean, I spent like three to four hours crunching some numbers for a story that I wrote for SDS on Wednesday morning. In the Billy Napier era, Florida's had eight games away from the swamp, right? So we're including neutral site. We're including Georgia. We're including the bowl game. Florida's record in those games, 1-7. in Wins versus bowl-eligible teams, settle. Points per game, 23. Points allowed per game, 33. Rushing yards per game allowed, a cool 200. Yards per play allowed, 6.3. Third down conversion percentage, 34.5 penalties per game 9.3 penalty yards per game 65.5 losses by double digits four games within 25 points or games with 25 points on offense three games allowing 30 plus points on defense six yeah the only win that Florida's had away from the swamp since Billy Napier showed up was against an Am team that obviously was in free fall last year so if will I said this to you What do you consider to be a semi-decent road win, right? Like, just a decent road win. We're not talking about going into Athens and pulling a 2019 South Carolina. We're we're not talking about doing what Texas did at Bama earlier in the year. We're just talking about a semi-decent road win. When you hear me say that, what does that mean to you?
1: Um, I think they could be looking at it right now. Yeah. A team that on a neutral field should be worse than you. Um, but the Mm -hmm. home field advantage is something that you have to overcome and that you can say, okay, well, this is a team that like, we're not really like, we're not equal that a home field would put them over the top against us. They are just enough worse than us that we should be able to overcome the team plus the home team.
0: Okay. That's fair. That's fair. I I went with these two, these two caveats for what I would consider a semi decent road win. You gotta be Mm -hmm. playing in, in front of a true road crowd. So we're right. not talking about n- no neutral site games or anything like that. We're not talking about COVID crowds, so that wipes out 2020 that entire season, right?
2: Yeah, anybody could win
0: it, like Vandy, for instance. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I mean, look, I would even look if Vandy was seven and five. All right, let's have that conversation. Vandy's sell, seven and five, selling out, whatever. But we'll we'll include that semi decent road win. It also, in my opinion, has to come against a team who went on to earn bowl eligibility, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all we're talking about here. When was the last time that Florida earned what we would call a
1: semi-decent road win? Hmm. No, that's a really good question. Um, Cause I, I imagine the swamp in the background, like the clip of them, you know, beating Auburn and the dude breaking off like, the run and you hear the crowd going crazy. I mean, I, I mean, it would have to be under Mullen, and I, I hate to just always make it another shoe thing, but I feel like it might have been no, because that one was at home too. Oh my gosh, I can't think of one.
0: Well, this is, this is not going to sit well. Okay. Last semi-decent road win for Florida, 2019 at Kentucky. Starting Sorry. quarterback that day was Felipe Franks. Felipe yep. Franks, last start at Florida, season-ending injury. Kyle Trask came in, saved the day fourth quarter comeback, that is the last time that Florida has gone on the road and beat a team that went on to earn bowl eligibility. That was 2019. That was a long time ago. There are so many issues that have plagued this team away from the swamp that it is hard to just pinpoint one specific thing and say this is why it hasn't worked because it hasn't even just been with one coach. It's not just a Napier thing because obviously the last year of the Mullen era, Florida was one in six in games away from the swamp with that lone win coming two hours away at USF, which by the way, I looked up because my buddy Ty Richardson was texting me. He's like, how far is Tampa from Gainesville? If I want to fly in to Tampa for the Arkansas game. And I was like, ah, that's like probably like three and a half, four hours Fly to Orlando. And it's start. not in
1: Southern Florida. That's all marketing.
0: Yep, <laughs> that's, that's true. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's actually like two hours and I'm two hours from Gainesville as well. So I thought that was, that was just an interesting thing. So basically wouldn't consider that to be an impressive road victory. Okay. Would not, but there are, More Napier numbers away from the swamp that are bad, that are really, really bad. The thing that took me the most time with this deep dive was figuring out time spent with a lead, time spent tied, and time spent trailing in these settings. Right, So in those eight games away from the swamp during the the Napier era, that's 480 minutes of football for those keeping track at home. Florida led for 75 minutes and 58 seconds. That's about 15.8% of that time. They were tied for 92 minutes and 58 seconds. It's about 19.4%. They trailed of a possible 480 minutes. They trailed for 311 minutes and four seconds. That is 64.8% of the time that they have been away from the swamp, that they have been trailing. The last time that Florida led in a game away from the swamp was coming out of the locker room at Florida state last year. That's, Significant. Very significant in my opinion. Because the blueprint for Florida success and what they're trying to do with Billy Napier, it's not that complicated. It's established the run. Keep the quarterback on schedule. Get off the field on third down on defense. That's it. You check all those boxes, you're good. You know what's really hard to do when you get off to these horrendous starts on the road, like Florida does. All three of those things. That's why it looks so bad. That's why it looks terrible when Florida's away from the swamp. If I'm Dal Loggins and that South Carolina offense, I'm saying, boys, we're gonna attack. Attack, attack. Let's punch him in the mouth. Let's do exactly what Utah did right from the jump. I don't care that we don't even have our starting quarterback in there. Utah was still like, we're going to come out slinging. That's what we're going to do. We're going to hit him in the mouth and make him play the game that they don't want to play. I don't have faith in Florida on the road. I don't, especially if their ground game is still a little bit banged up. They're coming off of the injuries, two starting offensive linemen, Trevor Etienne. Hopefully he's able to play in this one. How telling it is that Florida won this game 38 to 6 last year. And South Carolina's only touchdown came via a fake punt. It was Beamer ball that scored their only touchdown of that game. Gamecocks are off to a two and three start. They have obvious issues. And the odds makers are still like, yep, South Carolina's the favorite. Give me the Gamecocks. I'll take 31 to 21. South Carolina wins this.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, obviously home field accounts for a couple of points. And it's just, it's different based on the environment. I do think that um, williams Bryce is a really good environment. Uh, we saw that last year in the A&M game. Man, that was a home field win. Like that was that crowd was jumping. And I think that you completely speak to it, which is that we've, you know, we have been on it with the Florida thing. It's that this offense, when it works, is just going all the way down the field. It's like slow. It's it's really these unstoppable drives like what you saw against Tennessee. Um, but they're just not built to come from behind. And so when you play a team that feels good at home and they feel like they have a chance to beat you, like we've talked a lot about teams feeling like they have a chance. There are lots of teams in the sec that have really like South Carolina went to Georgia feeling like they had a chance. And I think that that's been something that teams that are often, you know, able to lean on their home field, put guys away or put teams away. We haven't seen it as much this season. Um, But that being said, I think that South Carolina in this instance is a team that like you said, hasn't had a ton of success recently. I think that they will be leaning on that like home field environment. Um, That being said, I'm going to be nice to Florida. I think that Florida is going to win this game. I just mm. don't. I, I don't see. Okay, here's what kills me about this. Okay, maybe have we considered Billy Napier is just a huge fan of the movie series Shrek. Maybe he just doesn't want to leave his swamp. Maybe when people get in his swamp, he tells them to get out of his swamp. I don't know. But this is a completely different team. When you look at like I predicted Kentucky to beat them. I didn't predict them to beat them like that. After the, after the Tennessee game, I was like, huh you know, these guys are really playing hard. Like we've kind of gotten some of the coaching stuff figured out that we don't have the weird penalties. We don't have like the fault. Like that all just unraveled at like 11 a.m. Central in Kroger field. And I just, I'm so sure. Cause it's, and I, as we've discussed, love Kentucky, Mark Stoops, guys playing hard, but it's not like you went to a Sanford stadium and we're playing the defending national champions. It's like you had a winnable game right in front of you there and you just imploded. But that being said, I think that this South, Carolina, this South Carolina team is just so deeply flawed. And I do want to see Florida be competent and put things together. And if they start losing games like this, where it's like on paper, I think Spencer been is a little bit better than Merck's. Um, But outside of that, you know, you can kind of look at LeGette, Pearsall kind of a wash. I think Leggett's a little bit better just as an overall receiver. But in that offense, you probably take Pearsall. Uh, but, but where I was going with all of that is, what do you think about the Florida defense right now? Because I know you're really high on them going into the Kentucky game. You know me. I'm always like, eh. Is this a good defense or not? I mean, they look lost against Kentucky. They did look lost
0: against Kentucky. I think it is still an overall positive. I think the Austin Armstrong hire has worked out. (laughs) I think, relatively speaking, compared to what that group was really the last three seasons coming into this, I think there are a lot of Florida fans that still feel encouraged by the overall progress that they've seen. They're not particularly deep. We're going to talk more about this with, with Neil Blackman as well, about some of the 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 blue chips that they have on the defensive side of the ball and how that that kind of benefits them. But I still think that week to week, you're looking at a group that has to show up with bad intentions. If they take their foot off the gas, they're not good enough to get by with that. I thought there was varying levels of effort in that Utah game. And when it looked like that things kind of clicked in the second half and they were firing off the ball in a different sort of way. I was like, okay, that you can win with that. You can definitely win with that. I don't know that they showed up with the the right the right approach. And that's why Utah kind of gashed them early and then did what Florida would love to be able to do. And you build on that lead. And it doesn't really even matter that you make all this progress in the second half. I still think that Austin Armstrong is going to put them in better spots. I'm curious if he draw, draws up the exotic pressures to try and confuse that offensive line and they're going to have two guys blocking one. I could totally close my eyes and picture that. And I don't think it's a banner day for Spencer Rattler, but I still think it's been more good than bad. And that's the group that they're going to lean on to try and win in an atmosphere like this.
1: Yeah. And, and the thing that's so interesting too. So I think personnel wise, Florida, like, this is just such a total overhaul, I feel, especially on the defensive side of the ball, because we talk about, like, the Mullen guys, but we don't really talk about the Grantham guys and just, like, how just gross that defense was, especially at the end. Shout out the Sanford game and everything. So, I think that when we think about Florida, we often think about offense just based on the way that the offense was just so weird at the end, you know, thinking – Emory Jones, Richardson, all that, ETN, you know, all that all that stuff. And 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 um obviously ETN's like a, a Napier guy, but like even that kind of bled into this year or into last year, sorry, with Anthony Richardson. And like so that's been a lot more obvious. But yeah, I think that for Florida to be any type of you know competitive, they need to get defense figured out. That's why I'm asking Austin Armstrong because I usually you kind of know what their defense is. Usually it's like, okay, this is, I mean, for the last couple of years, not been good. Um, But that's why I was like, okay, like I saw the stats. I was like, I don't know. And then we saw Ray Davis do what he did. So all I'm saying with that is it seems like the young guys, and we see this all over college football where you have, uh, maybe they don't have as many transfers, but they have guys that kind of older guys that aren't as talented, but then you have younger guys that are, that are going to be that next wave that are going to play together with Lagway that are going to be like, you know, Florida fans are selling kind of the hopium on that. And I think that you need to get those guys into good positions because they're talented. You know, it's like I would rather have a talented dude whose head is in the right place who's going to make some mistakes the way that Harold Perkins was last year uh, than just have a bunch of, you know, don't want to just dump on the guy, a bunch of Andre Sams that are just like you couldn't play in the SEC for your whole career. We just need you here. And so point being, I, I think that we need to see these guys grow up and we need to see them not collapse the way they have. And I think that South Carolina is a team that will just – unfortunately, find a way to lose games. I think that they have this quarterback that has been one of the better ones in the SEC. Um, They have one of the best receivers in the SEC, which is one of the most impressive things to be right now. Um, But at the same time, they just really felt like they... I mean, even against like Tennessee, they felt like for periods, it was like, okay, we got, and it was just picks it like they will just find a way, um, which is really ironic with something like Beamer ball, because that usually will kind of do the opposite of that. And that's what they're able to do last year was flip games on special teams. Um, but that being said, I, I I do think this is a great opportunity for Florida to kind of show where they're going. We know where they are, but to show where they're going. And if they don't win this game, you kind of just start to look and you're just like, man, you got FSU. You got Georgia, you got LSU. Like, when are you going to figure this out, man? Like, well, if the,
0: the loser of this game, no matter what, those Sunday scaries are going to hit hard. They're yep. going to hit hard because they're going to look up at the remaining schedules and they're going to see, oh boy, we're not a guarantee to go to a bowl game. That's how yep. the loser of this game is going to feel. And that is a really daunting reality heading into the second half of this schedule. Hopefully it's good. Hopefully it's competitive. I feel like there's like a lot of unique, unexpected history with these two teams. Oh, we've got a car alarm going off in the background. That's always fun. Again. I don't know why a car alarm's going off at three o'clock in the middle of an Orlando suburb day, but nonetheless, um, yes, I do think that this ends up being a day in which we're reminded Florida's just been a different team away from the swamp. And until yep. they show me that they're not, that's what I'm going to default to. That I think
1: even Florida fans would admit that. I can't okay. believe I've never made that Shrek connection. Just this is my swamp. Get out of my swamp. He doesn't want to go to the castle. He wants to stay in the swamp. Shrek Two is not
0: for me. Not for me. Yeah, no, they should have stopped at one. But I, I get it. It's a money grab. You know, it's just mm-hmm. sitting right there. Mizzou, number twenty-four. Kentucky. Kentucky's a two and a half point favorite in this one. The over under I have is two and a half references to nil. Yeah, oh. um, I know. There's look. I know there's nil fatigue. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to bore people, and there are are probably some people that when I had Brandon Copeland on, they're like, hey, I don't really care about NIL. It doesn't impact me, blah, blah, blah. I still think it's worth revisiting. I'm not trying to just beat a dead horse here. But the reason I bring this up, in case you somehow missed it, Mark Stoops said on his call-in show this week, when asked about Kentucky's struggle to beat elite teams, and by the way, this is via Kentucky.com, he said, quote, fans have that right. I give it to them. I just encourage them to donate more because that's what those dudes are doing. I can promise you, Georgia, they bought some pretty good players. You're allowed to these days. We could use some help. Stoops then encouraged Kentucky fans to pony up if they're frustrated with the struggles against teams like Georgia. A lot to unpack there. <laughs> and I know a lot of people have already tried to do their best to unpack this issue. Well, Stoops isn't wrong to say that and we were talking about this earlier he's not coming at this from a crazy perspective that this is the NIL world that we live in if you think he's calling out Georgia and he's going on the on the attack you're living in a pre NIL world when right. that sort saying of saying you pay players
1: is not a diss anymore, it's a compliment. It's like y'all got yeah. money, man. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and I think people know that. And I don't really think Georgia fans were up in arms about this or anything like that. It, once upon a time, that saying something like that on public airwaves was far more accusatory than it currently is. And also, by the way, Georgia spends more than everyone else on recruiting in general in non-NIL ways with official visits, flying yep. across the country taking choppers across Atlanta. Kirby will do it all that we know. Mm-hmm. I brought this up the other day. I think Stoops is tremendously frustrated because he sees the writing on the wall and whether he wants to come out and say this, there's a sense that, and I don't even know. He basically did say this without those changes. This is as far as he can take Kentucky. He knows this is year 11. Okay. It's not a bad thing necessarily that this is as far as he can take Kentucky when you talk about the historical success against Florida and how he has taken that barrier and just shattered it. Even winning in Knoxville, that was a really big deal to be able to do that a few years ago. And just being a team that's relevant, that's in the top 25 conversation that people actually respect, those are all good things. But even a week removed from clinching a three-game winning streak against Florida, something that, like I said, that would have been wild. To consider even early in the Stoops era, he's being pressed on why he can't beat elite teams. A fan brought up the fact that he has just two wins against SEC teams who finish with a winning conference record. And Stoops didn't think that was correct. He, he was like, <laughs> I don't think what you're saying is
1: is <laughs> did right. Get that number again. Uh, yeah, I already did, brother. You, you lost those games.
2: Oh, well, uh...
0: <laughs> my... my...
1: My guy, Jack it it's like when Michael Scott said, "Run the numbers again, like crunch the numbers again." He's like, "All right, yeah. he just hits <laughs> enter." Yeah,
0: that's basically what happened here. Jack <laughs> Pilgrim, KSR, shout out KSR. He looked this up. It's right. It is right. 2017 South Carolina game, 2018 Florida game. That's it. And so I went and I I was I was wondering, okay. And I know a lot of people in the replies were talking about, well, they beat all these teams that ended up four and four, and if Kentucky had beat them, then they would end up with a winning record in conference play. So there's something to be said for that. I went and did this exercise for Florida and for South Carolina for that 10 year stretch. That's what we're talking about here because that's how long Stoops has been in Lexington. So we're just doing 2013 through 2022 victories against SEC teams who finish with a winning record in conference play from 2013 to 2022. Will, do you have any guesses for South Carolina and Florida? Wait, give me, give me that one more time. Okay. Victories against SEC teams who finished with a winning record in conference play from 2013 to 2022. Kentucky is 2. How many do you mm-hmm. think South Carolina
1: has? How many do you think Florida has? Oh man, yeah, I mean, I think that Florida has some good seasons around then, man. I'm going to guess that they have around 10, but I think South Carolina has around like 3 or 4. I'd say those are good guesses. Those are those are excellent guesses. I would say that you
0: covered the spread on that. Florida has 9. South okay. Carolina has 5. So okay. Those are, yeah, I look, I, I think that and Bud Elliott brought this up as well on the Cover Three Podcast, talking about how Kentucky has the exact same amount of victories against teams that have a winning record in SEC play in the 10 years before Stoop showed up as well. So you could look at that and be like, oh well, gosh, she's not taking that next step. But it's beating the teams that you're supposed to be able to beat. Right. And what I think Kentucky fans have still have relatively good perspective on is it's still so much better than the alternative. It's so much better. Here's the pushback that I would have on soups comments though. Cause I think what he said in a vacuum is accurate. If you come out and say, Hey, we need you to donate more. If you say that after the Florida win, it's received in a much different way than if you say it after getting smashed against Georgia. That's the difference. Ryan Day and Nick Saban have both been pretty vocal about what it takes to retain a roster in this NIO world that we live in and how Mm -hmm. they need local businesses to step up so that they can keep players on board. That's college football in today's day and age. Stoops is not the first person to come out and say that, yes, it takes money. Money drives this. The more you donate, the better. The better chance we're going to have against league competition. But, 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 but. When you're the $9 million coach and -hmm. the answer to that question after you get smoked again against Georgia is, well, I've done all I can do and they just have better players because their fans donate more than ours. Fans are like, wait a minute, what? So I get it. I actually think this is a rare case where both groups of people are well Mm -hmm. within their rights to feel the way that they do. If you aren't addressing NIL directly, you're failing. And there are a lot of programs that are addressing it directly and winning as a result. Mizzou is addressing NIL with that in-state deal for high school recruits. It could be Such the thing Such a that genius th- move. I can't believe more states haven't done that. Yeah. I, I bet the legislation is being drawn up right now in a lot of these places and trying to get it before that federal legislation, if that ever does come. Maybe they're going to try and have this become a thing that, that is very normal in college football. Maybe it's something that gets Mizzou into that top 25 conversation a lot more consistently than they've been in, in the playoff era. You have to address it. So that's that's kind of how I felt about that, that subject. And we were talking a little bit about this beforehand. But what did you think about Stoops' comments, the timing,
1: the subject matter, all of it? So my thing is this is a situation where I think Kentucky basketball helps you tremendously. Because these are the same fans that had, you know what I'm saying, Enos Cantor, They had Shaden Sharp. They had Scal Lebesier come out of nowhere. I'm not saying they paid those players, but I'm saying look at that 2013-14 team. We had Julius Randle, the Harrisons, all those boys. That team sleptwalked through the regular season, and they were trash. And then they got to the tournament, and it was like, dang, we just got way more talent than y'all. It doesn't matter that Calipari is coaching us. It doesn't matter what we got going on. We're just going to hoop y'all up. We're all 18, 19 years old. That was before the Duke title uh, with um with the, the one-and-dones and everything. Ford, like That yeah. was yeah, with Okafors, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and and so that was kind of hadn't been done with one and dones before. So like, they were on the forefront of talent wins. That's it. Like you, yeah, you could play. And I mean, you, you can look at like you know the Wisconsin uh, team that beat them in the Final Four with with um cat with Cat and everything. I understand Minsky that. And,
0: but, yeah, they, all yeah, all those but those, those
1: were like Decker. some all time yeah. dudes too. Like those are guys that been there a long time. It wasn't just guys that were you know like these like uh, hard screens. These are like NBA players that were there. So point being, like it, it they've seen Kentucky basketball run up against uh, you know, these well-coached four-year, like, leadership teams and just have some young dudes that were awesome. And so that's where I'm coming from, is that, you know, from a football standpoint, the concept of, oh, you know, talented, paying players, all this stuff, is like, it's always been, like, this big taboo. But basketball has been part of the game. And I understand that football has been part of the game, but it is an essential part of the game in basketball, where you know that these guys at the top are going to win you championships, or at least get you money and coverage and all the things that you need. So you can literally flip the coin and go, okay, look what Calipari does. And again, like, I've watched a lot of Calipari like one of my best friends growing up was a Kentucky fan we always joked about he was the less miles of college basketball you give him these great talented players and he found a way to score like 50 points with them. and imagine if he didn't have those players and so you've seen what happens when you have talent in subpar coaching I'm not gonna you know break any news with that one versus, yeah, you could have guys that are coaching their butts off and maybe they'll win a game against Kentucky and upset them, but they usually go out the next round, right? And so that that's the thing is that, like, they've seen what having talent does in basketball and therefore what it does not do in football. And you see when you run into a Georgia who is like the Kentucky or the Duke of football, and it's like, dang, yeah, this is when we go to, you know – Mississippi state in basketball and they just don't have the dudes to keep up with us. So yeah, I I think that at the end of the day, the timing is bad. You're right about that. I mean, it makes them look like a little bit of a sore loser and I understand that, but I think that when you look at that Georgia roster and you, and and it's not just the money. I mean, Georgia has the tradition, the winning, like Athens is awesome. Atlanta is even cooler. I live in Atlanta. There's lots of reasons to go to Georgia other than that they're paying you. But at the same time, it's like, here's where this program is and here's where we're at. And the difference is not X's and O's because, like, you know, we love Liam Cohen. And we talked about, you know, they brought in Ray Davis. They brought in Leary. Like, it's not that he's sitting there going, we just – we don't have the guy. We can't get the guys. It's like he's getting some guys, but still it's not enough against these just, like, armies, like the 300 Spartans of Georgia. They're just beating them down at every turn. I think the irony
0: is that if he had come out and said – well, we need to do a better job of scouting talent and developing and sticking to our blue-collar roots, I think Kentucky fans would have heard that and actually been more mad because the, and that's, that's the thing, though, is that he's at least addressing at a very blue-collar place mm-hmm. that talent wins. Talent acquisition game. Talent acquisition and the way that that process, you go about it. Has changed. And yep. if there is a way in which we can bridge that gap, we should do it. Why wouldn't we do it? It's the same reason why he's got to push Mitch Barnhart to get an indoor facility and they're the last SEC team to do it. Yep. Why why wouldn't you want to have a shortcut to be able to bridge the gap between yourself and the standard, not just in the SEC East, but in all of college football? If you could do these things, do them. So I think Stoops deserves a little bit of credit. For realizing, to for getting to this point and realizing no matter how much blue collar stuff I throw around here, I ain't beating that team. I ain't beating that team with the way that things are currently constructed. And unless we find a way to bridge that gap with the talent that we're bringing in these doors, it's just not going to happen. But again, as I say, the timing of it comes off not so great. And that's probably why it made the rounds the way that it did. If he says it after Florida, it does not make the rounds in that sort of way. And the fact that it's right after you come off of the loss to Georgia and you're saying that it's Georgia who's buying players. Obviously, that's why that comment is still, I think, the number one headline on ESPN.com right now as we record, which is kind of crazy.
1: but. Yeah, it was a very interesting week in that discussion. Um, so well, I'll say this, uh, too. I think you just hit a great point, which is that, like, he's, it's like he's getting all the water out of that rocky can. It's like there are but so many J.J. Weaver's. There are but so many Lynn Bowdens, There are but so many Cash Daniels. He's gotten all of them that he can't. <laughs> we need something else because it's not – we need to go back and get more three-stars that play, like, four-stars or four-stars that play, like, five-stars. Yes. It's like, all those dudes are on this roster, and it doesn't matter because they got five-stars that play, like, five-stars out there.
0: Yeah, that, and that that is – true and you could look at the development of talent and all those different things that are associated with it. Uh, It still comes down to talent acquisition. The the more you bring in your doors, the better chance you have to win crazy, crazy concept. So there's been a lot of focus on that heading into this game. Here's your key stat. When was the last time that Mizzou won a true sec road game at night in front of a non COVID crowd?
1: Oh man, this is really just a snail race, isn't it? Oh. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, in front of a not, a true road. I mean, I'm trying to is it is it pickle? Cool? Wait. No, cuz that was man, I I don't know. I'm I'm going to say it was like 2018. It's yeah, it's 2017 at Vandy. Oh yeah. man.
0: It's they've only had four opportunities since then though, which is kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Um they're they're not given for whatever reason that spotlight night game worthy. But that's that's what I always wonder about with drink and at what I think is interesting for this team and trying to take that next step. This is the type of game you have to win if you're going to get to that 8-9 win season that we've talked about and not just be the most mid-team possible in the SEC. So even though I continue to worry about Kentucky's passing game, I will say that Ray Davis does the heavy lifting against the Mizzou run defense that kind of had its first bad game last week against LSU. I will go Kentucky to win and cover 28 to 24.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, these last two LSU games have shown me just screaming the strangest things at my television. Number one, celebrating Ole Miss field goals. And number two, furious at Brady Cook that he wasn't playing better. Even as a fan, I'm just like, it's right there. That guy is open. What are you doing? And I guess that just like makes me a podcast host where I just want to see good football. But it's like, Bro, like you, sh- they should have won that game. I'll say it over and over and over again. And like I was, I was joking with you about like LSU fans saying this is a two loss team. This is a two loss team so far. Um, but like you know, they had so many opportunities to put LSU away and to win that game. And Brady Cook just kind of imploded, and and so did Drink in the play calling. And it's just like I wanted so badly to see that next step. I talked about that against Kansas State. You know, we talked about it at the time I picked them. Like I want to see them move into what they used to be and be this like powerhouse in the east that plays great defense and like does all this stuff, but they just keep tripping over their shoes. And I think that like especially, you know, given and and this is like one of those games that I feel like the environment definitely does matter. Um, Like, I think it being at Kentucky, like we talked about, Kentucky is a different team at home. And, you know, we've seen that um, there are two teams that really are different on the road and at home. We just talked about Billy Napier in Florida. Mark Stoops has been the same thing where he plays differently at Kroger Field. Um, And I think that the the game location, especially after where both teams are, Kentucky building, um, Kentucky coming back from that, like Georgia Lost, you know, they kinda had something at Florida, but now they're they're kind of licking their wounds where they were really successful against Florida. And then Mizzou, even at home last week, found a way to kind of puke on their shoes a little bit. So them going on the road to a Kentucky team that will be fired up. I mean, Mark Stoops is, you know, we've joked about coaches that are it's a bad week after they get blown out in the practice facility. Brian Kelly, certainly one of those coaches. Uh, Saban, Kirby, Buck Stoops is right there. I think after this game, he is screaming, at, you know, he's got like some shorts on, his hands are in his pocket. He looks like a dad at Little League whose son's been hitless for three weeks. He's furious at his team right now because, you know, they had a chance and they obviously, they I won't say they blew it because, again, what's the expectation? But they didn't, they didn't represent themselves well, I think is the bigger issue. They made it seem impossible, especially after those comments. So what I'm saying is, you know, I think we'll get a smash-mouth team from Kentucky. Um, And I think that Mizzou, I mean, if we get that second half Brady Cook, I mean, that's who was getting booed. I mean, there was no difference between second half Brady Cook than the guy that fans did not want to see. The one that, you know, it's so funny how our brains work, man. It's so funny when you look at, like, motivation and what makes people tick and stuff like that. As soon as that streak got ended, it was like back to old Brady Cook. And so, and with this Kentucky defense, man, they actually have a defense that can cover those receivers. LSU ain't have. (laughs) That's true. I
0: I would... I would be really impressed with Mizzou if they put up 28 points in this game because yep. of all the things that you mentioned, because of the adjustments we would expect Mark Soups' defense to make. I was trying to look up earlier. The last time somebody went into Kroger Field and put up 28 points, I think it's been a long time. I think it's been a minute. Because even last year, Georgia goes into that game, and it was, what, 16-6 to 6 or something like that? I mean, yep. there have not been – it was uh, probably – it, w- it would have been Tennessee 2021 – I want to say was the last team to have a good offensive day at Kroger field. It just does not happen. They play really, really well on that side of the ball at home. And yeah, it's been a bit up and down offensively, but I would think that if, if Mizzou is throwing the all over the place, if Luther Burton still looks like himself and there's nobody on that field that can stop him, I'm I'm feeling really encouraged if I'm a Mizzou, if I'm a Mizzou fan in this one because that means your play calling is still working and if Kirby Moore is is out scheming Brad White and and Mark Stoops you're doing something right and that might be yep. loser talk if you don't win this game but I just think that's a difficult task and if Mizzou wins this game I will be very very impressed knowing how good Kentucky has been at home
1: not to just keep like and we talked offline about the James Franklin thing but it's like you know if you have these receivers and Weiss really showed me something against LSU. I mean, like, even though he, like, again, I will dump on LSU's defense more than anyone. He made some plays, like, he he was adjusting to the ball well. He was like, it, Cook was fitting it in tight windows. Weiss arguably outplayed Burden in the difficulty of catches he was making. Obviously, Burden is unstoppable, he made all these big numbers and everything, especially downfield. But Weiss was the guy that was, I was so worried about Weiss all game. So, when you have two receivers like that, that, um, you know, you even against great DBs, you should just be able to throw the ball up and let them go get it. That should be a pretty unstoppable force in college football. But like I said, this play calling is just not, gone towards that it's like it, every time they tested every time it was a one-on-one except for that last kind of a duck that Brady Cook threw at the end every time the receiver adjusted the ball Brady Cook fit it in a tight window that'll work against Georgia I'm here to tell you right now if if you are that confident and you're throwing the ball Luther Burton he's gonna catch it now what you do between those plays is how you lose to Georgia but yeah it's just so disappointing because they they really do have like an offense that could be really freaking good man
0: Really good measuring stick game for that Mizzou offense. Excited to see that. I think that's a good one on Saturday night at Kroger Field. All right, let's get weird, Will. <laughs> I I love the Tiger Bowl. I absolutely love it. It's fun, it's stupid, weird things happen. Auburn, number 22, number 2022. Wow. Number 22, LSU. Rhymes. LSU is 11 a half point favorite. The over under I have for this one, 79 Auburn passing yards.
1: <sighs> mm-hmm.
0: That is Auburn's average against power five competition this year.
1: <laughs> Pick it up, buddy.
0: Double it. What? Let it ride. <laughs> Four yards per attempt, <laughs> including last year. Well, this is so bad. This is, this is disgusting. Including last year, Auburn has six consecutive games without passing for a hundred yards against power five competition. I got more. I got more. Okay. If you include the non-Power 5 games, just throw them in there. Come on, UMass, we'll throw you in there. Auburn's passing yards per game. It ranks one spot nationally behind Army. Like the Service Academy, that's it. We support the troops, we do. Army is, in its first year, trying to not look like Army. Yeah. They are trying to run, I think it's the gun option offense. They're they're trying to get away from the triple option, so yeah, it's bad. It's really really bad. Also, pretty ironic that those are the next two teams on LSU schedule. Not exactly thriving at the whole forward pass thing. Auburn's passing offense is number one twenty one in FBS. LSU's passing defense number one twenty one in FBS. Something's got to give. Electric matchup. Something's got to give. Well, I don't know that it will. Maybe they'll just both fail. They might. I don't know. Another thing. LSU's defense has allowed 37 scrimmage plays of 20 yards, which is second most in Power 5, trailing only USC, of course, obviously. LSU's offense is number one in America with 50 scrimmage plays of 20 yards. That's good. That's really good. So in six LSU games this season, there have been 87 total scrimmage plays of 20 yards. It's like an average of 14 and a half per game you're gonna see a scrimmage play of 20 yards once every four minutes if you're watching LSU play football that's yep that's electric that's fun to watch for
1: sickos like me that just want to watch basketball on turf sometimes yep. I joked about one. like I've been joking about with my friend's gifts I'll put on my tombstone one of them is just Jaden Daniels setting his feet and just like releasing the ball immediately knowing that one of those guys is running wide open It's every time I'm like oh here we go. Every time he sets his feet, yeah, there is a good
0: chance it's Brian Thomas, it's Malik neighbors, 35 yards, just like that. Mm -hmm. Snap the fingers, bank on it. So I decided to crunch the numbers, theme of the show, on the 20-yard plays that, uh, that have been in Iowa games, right? So this year, Iowa games have had a total of 30 plays that have gone for 20 yards. In 13 games last season, Iowa had 60 total plays of 20 yards. So that's offense and defense. In okay. the last 19 Iowa games, you have had 90 scrimmage plays of 20 yards. That's basically the same amount that we've seen from LSU through six games <laughs> this season.
1: you got to hit the time when they're consistent, right?
2: they're they know what they up. are. They're
0: not going to let it up, and they're not going to take those shots downfield. This game is begging to be weird. Tiger Bulls always weird. Okay. We know that Auburn has two passing plays of 20 yards in 180 minutes of football against power five defenses, bad, not good, not breaking any news by saying that I'm going to guess though, that coming off a buy, they hit 20. Eh, let's, let's say they have three passing plays of 20 yards. I'm going to get crazy. Okay. I'm going to get real bold. And it won't just be air yards, right? I think it'll be because Auburn dials up screens, and it's yeah, it's it's a play that ends up going much longer than we think it will. I got to thank Hugh Freeze, Philip Montgomery. They're going to dial up some some unique looks to be able to try and get some of those guys in space, basically make LSU make open field tackles, which so far has been very, very good. <laughs> Great strategy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, The good news for Auburn, they're going to get Jalen Simpson back in that secondary. They need him badly. I don't know that they're going to be able to stop Brian Thomas, Blink neighbors. They definitely won't if they don't have Jalen Simpson on that field. But fortunately, it looks like he'll be able to play. I have talked myself into Auburn keeping this close, Will, and maybe I'll regret that. But this game is just always close, excluding 2020, which we should just do for all stats and uh, trends, whatever. Every other matchup since 2016, which was the Fire Bowl with Les and Gus, who could forget? <laughs> yeah, they've all been decided me. by they've all been decided by one score. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? I'll say that continues this year. And as bad as LSU has been defending the pass, also been one of the worst in the country against the run too. Auburn leans on that. LSU wins close game. Tiger Bowl is decided. LSU wins 35-28.
1: Yeah, one thing that's really interesting about this matchup, because there's an obvious focus on this horrible defense versus this just as horrible offense on one side of the field. And I will say, just as before anything happens, if LSU does win this game and their defense plays well, and then they play Army and their defense plays well again, don't believe that this defense is good. Don't do it. Because we've seen the personnel is the issue, all right? Like, I know, like, LSU fans after that win are trying to tell me, like, again, two team, we might make something happen. Mm-mm. We, now, I will say, LSU got to play like four or five veteran quarterbacks in a row in the middle of their season, which is kind of yep. tough. And even Peyton Thorne, you could kind of say, as a veteran quarterback, a veteran at what? Who's to say? Um, but one thing that I will say is that, uh, as far as overall, like, you know, total like national rankings. Alabama is nineteenth in defensive yards allowed. Right? That is joyless murder ball. That is oh my gosh! Alabama's gone back to the basics. They are playing amazing defense with uh, the worst offense in the SEC. Is, does Auburn have the worst offense in the SEC? Mm.
0: Uh, statistically, I don't know that they're officially the worst. If they're not, they're very close to it. Because Vandy, Vandy at least had those few games. And they can throw on. the ball. Yeah, so I would probably guess yes, but it probably is different if you just focus. If you focus on just Power Five games, which you probably should, then
1: yes, they have the Mississippi worst State's tough, but they've at least had a couple of games where they're like up and down. There's it's all kind of been down for Auburn. Even in the Georgia game, if they had kind of played like middling offense, they might have beaten Georgia because it was all just like weird plays anyway. So with Alabama playing, you know, this great brand of football, they're 19th. Auburn is 25th. Um, in total yards per game. And obviously, I mean, well, I mean, they both are a run heavy offense. It's not like talking, one of them. You're is- just
0: talking total yards per game allowed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. Defensively. Yeah, like-
1: been, yeah. I think
0: defensively Auburn is good. I think they've been put in some really good spots and that's kept them relatively competitive in games. That they probably should not be competitive in with that offense.
1: Yes. And so where I'm going with that is like, I do think that, uh, this is going to be a rock fight. I don't think that we're going to get 50 points out of Jaden Daniels. I think that this is going to be. Easily the best defense that he's played. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I've been looking at like, you know, some of the LSU camps talking about, you know, this Auburn defense is full of like older dudes. Like maybe there aren't, there aren't dudes that you've heard of, but they've had college football experience. They've been a really proud unit. And like, it's the opposite of the LSU situation where the Auburn defense knows they need to win the game. The Auburn defense knows if they play poorly, it's lost. It's not even close. Whereas just as the LSU offense has felt that way. So I'm almost more intrigued by that matchup as funny as the other one will be, because if there is a team on this schedule um that plays with that sense of like uh urgency that knows like it's like an old school defense that they know if you give up a touchdown you know we may not be able to get one back for a whole quarter so it's 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 a a level of like backed into a corner style defense and like i said like you know alabama controlling the ball the way they have even, even through the turnovers you know um, it's it's harder to to have those high defensive rankings when your offense is just putrid because you keep giving the ball to the other team. Um, so yeah, I I will say that like this will probably not be the LSU offense that we've seen every week so far that has just been lighting it up. You know, Arkansas. Just we, we've played lots of similar teams. LSU has right Arkansas, Ole Miss. Um, And, I mean, they kind of just made Mizzou look bad on defense. I think Mizzou's defense is fine, but it's not great. I don't think it's at the level that Auburn's is. So, like, we've seen lots of veteran quarterbacks, lots of good offenses, and also, like, some not great defenses for LSU um, on the opposition. So, I think this could be a statement game for Jaden Daniels. If he does play that well, it would be insane. Um, Because, like I said, this is a defense that just has not quit this year at all. Um, But, yeah, I I think another element of it, too, is that even though we've seen that famously LSU has given up these long pass plays, when Mizzou needed a play, it was a 51 yard run. You know, so you worry a little bit about Robbie Ashford and the way that they played against Georgia. So I'm with you. I think the LSU wins this game, but I don't think it's going to be like some crazy ball out. I would love it. I'm going to be there. It's going to be awesome. I'm going, you know, with the boys down to Baton Rouge. This will be our only game in Tiger stadium this year. So I'd love nothing more than a 50 burger, but I I really do respect this Auburn defense. I, I don't think it's going to happen. So I think this will be a little bit of like an old school SEC football game where, you know, yards are hard to come by and that's the style of football that Auburn plays. So we'll see how Jaden Daniels does in an environment where guys aren't running wide open downfield. And he has to like fit the ball into tighter windows. Not that he's ever had an issue with that, but it always feels like that guy like makes a dude fall down at the exact right moment in these other games. It always feels like that play is there to be had, and we're gonna see. You know, Jaden Daniels has not been on the injury report, which is crazy considering how injured he looked last week. Um, but we'll see how healthy he is. So I think this yep. is as much as Jaden is has played well this season. If there are football understanders watching this game, this could be the game that really vaults him in the eyes Heisman discussion if he plays well against this Auburn defense.
0: This could also be the game in which you're at least wondering, you're sitting there with your boys and the vibes are a little bit tense and you're wondering to yourself, hmm, I know that Hugh Freeze in year one is going to win one of these games against the SEC competition that he's not supposed to win. Right. Is today going to be that day? I think you'll have a couple of moments where that thought at least enters your mind and you think, oh boy, I don't like how close this still is. This is a game that, you feel like you should be up three touchdowns. And for whatever reason, whether it's a missed tackle here, whether it's a special teams touchdown there, a pick six or something like that happens in this game in which you just say, man, Auburn is still close. They're still, still close. And I had that thought when I was there 2019 for this game. And that was in the midst of obviously LSU's historic season. And even with a true freshman quarterback in Bonex, that was their, that was their closest game of the year. And I thought to myself, because it was very tense vibes. 3.30 game, CBS. It was going into the bye week. It was don't mess this up before Bama. And LSU fans were just like, you just never know with Auburn. You just yeah. never, ever know. And for whatever reason, things could be going historically well. And even in the midst of this season in which, God, nobody looked like they belonged on the same field as LSU. Auburn found a way to do that. And obviously a very different regime. And maybe that's not fair logic to apply to this. But I just had this sneaky suspicion. I didn't think that earlier in the week, and then the more I thought about this game and the way that this always goes, I just kept coming back to that. So, yeah, I do think this ends up being a good one. Tiger Bowl is just, it's must-see. It is must-see.
1: I don't think a lot of people outside of the SEC give a crap about it. They should. They should turn it out Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to and you saying this is his favorite LSU rivalry. And if you think about, you know, the coaches that have been there, the players that have been there, like two really two programs that have been at similar places, which is, you know, I hate to say it out loud. Alabama is kind of like the big dog. And these two programs have been kind of pushing Alabama up through the last 10, 15 years. Um, And they are kind of there's a pecking order. Right. And there was for at least You know, eight to 10 there where it was like uh, Gus and Les Miles there was like, no, no, we're going to win eight to 10 games. We're going to play hard defense. And this was a game that could have gone either way. It's not like, oh, you know, we're going to play back then. okay back then. Mississippi State, Ole Miss, not that way anymore. But, okay, we're going to walk over those teams. But we have to really worry about Auburn because that could be, you know, it could turn into a New York Six Bowl of the season or, like, more of a Capital One Bowl-style season. So, yeah, I, I think that, like, this rivalry is hopefully getting back to that. I mean, we have Hugh Freeze and Brian Kelly now. I mean, that's a heck of a matchup. Two coaches have never played against each other, which is a pretty wild little mm. stat. Um, but, yeah, and, and, you know, two weird – Coaching trees, I'm not going to do this I was randomly, as I often do, 2 a.m. reading about uh, Coach O at Ole Miss. And it was like back when Hugh Freeze was like a GA, basically, or like a, a PR staffer for Coach O at Ole Miss. And it's just crazy to see Hugh Freeze's kind of rise and the fact that he doesn't really come off of a typical coaching tree. So he has a lot of those where it's like, oh, I don't know who you're – like grandfather of your coaching tree is because you're Hugh is. You're this other unworldly entity that's just kind of come up out of nowhere. So I think that's what makes him so interesting and so unique. Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be a really, really good game. And like I said, it's 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 going to be both, both fronts. Like get your popcorn because it's going to be even on both sides. For the sake of your entertainment
0: and LSU fans everywhere, I hope Eugene Asante does not smash Jaden Daniels' ribs into smithereens.
1: I hope that. <sighs> Just a healthy Jaden Daniels is all I ask for. Even if it just give me a healthy Jaden Daniels because he's so special, man. He is. Lock of the week. Let's do it. Um,
0: Oklahoma took care of business for me last week. Appreciate that. They put on this, uh, if you you saw it on social media, they had a post-game video with all the people picking against them. Yep. In my opinion, I think they need to kind of raise their standards of who they consider a doubter with a respected voice in this industry (laughs) and not just a guy who yells hot takes without actually watching football. But that's just my opinion. Uh, We don't need to get into who specifically that is. We're back to three and three. We're back to three and three this week. A little bit of a more- madhouse
1: action on the lock of the week. You know, we're really starting to get into four. <laughs> I, I don't really like that. Don't like where you're going with that. Uh, we're getting over 500. I
0: could feel it. How are we going to do that? We're going to turn to Eugene Chiswick. Oh, boy. Haven't done it. Haven't done it all year. Been kind of not wanting to jinx my guy. Heels are three and a half point favorites at home against Miami. Fresh off that very bizarre loss, UNC doesn't need Mario Cristobal to black out in order to put this one away. I think they don't necessarily need the benefit of a coach who doesn't understand how kneel downs work. If Haynes King yep. can do that to the Miami secondary, so can Drake May. All this defensive <sighs> improvement that we have seen—I saved the receipts. I saved the receipts. All of these people saying Chiswick's one and done. He's past his prime. What a disastrous hire for Mac Brown. My man has that group playing at such a high level right now. They allowed a 27 to nine TD die and T ratio last year. This year, UNC under that same gene Chiswick, two to seven TD die and T ratio through five games. Both of those passing touchdowns came against app state who might just have UNC's number. And everybody wants to talk about, Oh, if you're allowing a million points to app state, then that means that you're a terrible defense. Maybe app State's just incredible. All right. Just back off. <laughs>
1: Find a new slant. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Some are saying the UNC defense is the most improved unit in the country. Some are saying that. Maybe they should be saying that. I am saying UNC covers minus three and a half. They continue to be the least talked
1: about undefeated power five team. Heels. They were a team that I talked about in the preseason, and maybe I was wrong about everyone else, but I feel like I was decently right about them. Where it was like, what do we see that we're – that we think that this team is just markedly worse than last year because it was just the Drake Major last year. You know what I'm saying? Like and they got our boy, oh, what was his name? Trez, the guy that you like Te- went on the rant about like, Tez, Tez Walker. Yeah, hey, hey, yeah, yeah. He's back finally after enough people got on, you know, airwaves and screamed about it because we were right and you were right, and it was great to bring that up because it was like, What is what is the NCAA doing? Don't you guys have like rampant cheating and like conference pillaging going on to worry about? No, no, they anyway. So yeah, and because I had this list already pulled up, they they're 35th. Um, So yeah, I think that their defense has completely turned around and a defense that now that we're out of the tunnel can say was a little bit of a liability last year. If you have that quarterback and a good defense, brother, I wish I was you because we just got that quarterback. So point being like that's when you really start to get. Um, when you really start to get the, get the juice, get the riz, because when you have a quarterback that you think can come back in games that can even get you out of a deficit and you have a defense that to your points for some more turnovers is starting to really like establish themselves as well. They could be a wagon in an ACC that's obviously, I mean, you got FSU and you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dump on FSU obviously, but it's not like a Clemson dynasty that you feel like there's this unbeatable team. They are the new kids on the block still. And if you're North Carolina, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, well we're undefeated as well. Um, you scored on that house. Congratulations. But we would like a little bit of this respect. in a Miami team that, again, is reeling. I, I, I am a big North Carolina respecter right now. I think
0: if Chiswick's defense crumbles in this one, God, I really hope that they don't. I'll, I won't pick UNC for lock of the week anymore. I'll, I'll deviate because then I'll know that it's just because I I, sh- I I, shine this very bright light on how improved that they've been this year and how much better that they've looked um, despite the fact that last year it was, it was rough. Yeah. We can admit it now, now that we're not in the tunnel, it was rough, but much, much improved. Neil Blackman's going to be at that game. Ironically enough. Hmm. Yeah. He is going to be at that game for Saturday road. Great stuff with him. He is very plugged in on all things, Florida and those things that even I don't. And sometimes with Neil, I have to like talk about, you know, some things that happen behind the scenes that he's privy to that. I am not just so that he can kind of set me straight. He is very, very smart on all things. Gators. I uh, thought it would be a good time to be able to dig into some of the issues facing this rebuild with Billy Napier, why there's some skepticism, some skepticism from important people. So here's Neil Blackman. I'm excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Neil Blackman. Uh, Neil does great work for us, both on the Saturday Down South side, covering all things SEC, obviously Saturday Road as well, covering the ACC. His latest is, and I shouldn't say it's it's your latest. You've written probably like five pieces since then, but the latest real deep dive that you did, it, it is a must read. It is titled A Deep Dive into Billy Napier's Slow Rebuild at Florida and all the frustrations coming with it. You talk to boosters, you talk to SEC coaches, media members, all of them for this piece that you, you you've spent weeks working on. Best part of the story, in my opinion, was the early Four Rivers reference. A little bit biased on that one. <laughs> Uh, if you know, you know, uh, Neil, take us, take us kind of what went into the motivation and the execution of, of wanting to write something like this, that a lot of people, um, look, you had a lot of people in the story that didn't want to be referenced by name. And, and I think there are a lot of people that will look at that and say, Oh, it's an anonymous source. Why wouldn't they go on the record? But just kind of take us into the, the reporting process of that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as soon as Florida lost to Utah, Um, I saw some of the out, the outrage on social media. And obviously I think Florida went out there and and they didn't play well. Um, but in this day and age, as you well know, you can't really tweet like, well, no one plays well at Utah without getting, you know, hacked at with Twitter saws. Uh, so I saw the outrage and I kind of thought, you know, I'm not personally convinced either direction on Billy Napier right now. Uh, You know, I know. Uh, our guy, Chris Wright is, is out already, right? Like he's made that pretty clear. I'm out on him. I don't think he knows what he's doing. I I just kind of feel like it's still too early to tell. And I wanted to do storytelling where I could talk to people that, you know, may feel the same way I do, like they're not sure. And then just sort of identify what they feel like needs to change. And I felt like the best way to do that would be to talk to football people. And oftentimes, to talk to coaches who are you're competing against, they're not going to go on the record and like say, you know, hey, this is Lane Kiffin, and here's what I think about. Well, that's a terrible example. Lane might have been the one guy who would be like, yeah, sure, you (laughs) could. But like, if I talk to Clark Lee, he's not going to say, you know, yeah, I don't know why Billy's calling his own plays. That's ridiculous, right? But if I say. Hey, I'll grant you non non-in- non-anonymity.
0: I can't say that word <laughs> either, so you're good there. I don't.
2: Yeah. Um, if if I allow you to to just be anonymous, um, you know, maybe you can uh, maybe you can speak more freely. And they were willing to do that. And then in terms of, I, I talked to three different boosters for the piece, um, each of whom have given over a million dollars to the University of Florida. Um, and so. When I did that, I figured, well, you know, anybody that really wants to know is going to be able to figure it out, probably, because um, that's a that's a relatively small list of people. Um, but I wanted to know where their heads were at, because they've had to pay, Florida just stopped paying Will Muschamp a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, how many times can you change? And one thing that stuck with me uh, very early in doing the reporting and and realizing it was a good idea for the piece was, one of these boosters, and this didn't even get into the piece. It was just, you know, on my list of quotes that I ended up having. And he said, Look, you know, Alabama had five coaches in what, 12 years prior to Nick Saban's arrival. But one of those guys won a national title and they won the SEC seven years before Saban got there. And he said, To me, I don't know if Florida fans, whether it's cognitive dissonance, they just don't want to process it or. Um, whether it's just kind of gotten lost in the close but no cigar Mullen era years, um, especially the 29 team, which had no business losing to that Georgia team uh, that they lost to and won the Orange Bowl pretty convincingly, um, I thought was certainly a playoff caliber team, right? I mean, they don't want to admit that it's been since 2008 that they won the, the SEC. They don't want to admit that Their last really great team, that Orange Bowl team was great. But other than that, it was 2009 when Tebow was the quarterback. Um, And then the 2012 team that won 11 games, but they won 11 games winning a bunch of one-score games with no offense Um, and a lot of smoke and mirrors, really. So I think, you know, and certainly a stacked roster, but a lot of smoke and mirrors on the field. And so I think it was just important to tell that piece of the story, that this isn't. Florida isn't really in the position to do the Kirby smart, fast rebuild. They weren't in the position um, to do some of the quick flips that we've seen and grown accustomed to. And then the other last question, sort of long-winded answer, Connor, is I'm starting to wonder how 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 frequent is the quick flip going to be nowadays? I mean, and I point at Southern Cal, right? Like I think Southern Cal and LSU were great examples. They hired a two guys that were interested in the Florida job, Scott Strickland went in another direction and kind of staked his career at Florida on it. I think based on the conversations I had, but you know, is, is that Lincoln Riley defense going to be good enough to get them to the playoff? And then LSU is not going to go to the playoff. Um, and you know, how many games are they going to lose this year in year two with, with a better roster than Florida? So, you know, Maybe the days of the Kirby Smart, Urban Meyer, Nick Saban, and Quick Flip are actually done. Um, and so that kind of spurred on some of this reporting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a perfectly fair point to bring up because Michigan State is another program that comes to mind where everybody was praising Mel Tucker for his quick flip, and now obviously that thing went down in, in flames, albeit for off-the-field reasons, but they were still heading in the wrong direction. If you look at some of the outgoing talent that they lost via the transfer portal, you're like, all right, well, what what do they really get by, by having that quick flip? And it's really hard to be able to, to sustain despite obviously the need to, to meet some of those expectations what vibe did you get from boosters about that buyout? Because there are too many people that have spoken about it that think that Florida will just be willing to pay $31 million to Billy Napier at the end of year two and not think twice about it.
2: So it was, that was, that was super interesting. I thought, um, you know, when I asked them if they'd be willing, if they were tired of running checks, that was the one time they pushed back. Like there was a lot of, Hey, you know, you don't understand the depths of not you, but the universal, you not Neil Blackman, you, Um, you know, I think people don't understand the depths of, of the mess that he inherited. Um, People look at the talent composite. You know, one guy said, I think he was like top 15 in the talent composite. And they thought, oh, well he should clearly win with that roster and Anthony Richardson. And it's like, well, you know, It doesn't take too much peeling back of the onion to realize the talent composite is a little deceptive, and in the context of Florida, Um, you know certainly their their twenty two starters were pretty darn good last year, Um, and if anything happened to those guys, then it wasn't as pretty, right? Um, And I think their kind of view of it was we would really like to get it right because we're all successful in business, and one of the keys to our business model suspense stability. Um, if you're constantly firing your CEO, maybe you can have short burst success, uh, these quick flips, but maybe you can't. That said, you know, they're like, well, I don't think we're ever going to be tired of writing checks to the University of Florida. If that were the case, we would have stopped a while ago. We would have we would have said, no, you know, let's not pay. will must jump this much not to coach us. Let's not pay Charlie Weiss this much not to be our offensive coordinator. Let's not pay, um, you know, whatever Dan Mullen is making to to still live in Gainesville and go on TV and make fun of Florida. They, I mean, they were happy to pay that too. So I think they'd be happy to pay the money um, if they thought that it was the right time to pay the money. But that's where none of them are convinced right now. Um, but it will be these big boosters that pay that $31 million. It's not going to be you know, grassroots contributions. Um, so, you know, it's really about what those guys are willing to pay. I
0: already went through the the issues that they've had away from home. And, and I know that was also prevalent in the end of the, the Mullen era and it wasn't just a Napier thing. So I'm not saying that is there concern though, that Billy style just isn't setting them up for success on the road away from the swamp, whatever you want to call it and that their margin for error with the game that he wants to play is maybe too slim, and that's a bigger picture issue that's not all automatically going to be flipped, even if he does continue to, to recruit very well, because he has recruited well, but that stylistic gap, is is that a concern at all with those important people?
2: It was with the coaches. The coaches that I talked to almost universally said, the biggest thing he needs to do is stop calling his own plays. They need a different scheme offensively because, um, and I thought the one, there was one coordinator who's active who had it best. And he said, it's not a bad scheme. Like he got irritated when he would, you know, I asked, is it a bad scheme? And he goes, the people who are saying it's a bad scheme are wrong. He's like, it's a West coast offense. It's a good scheme. It's not particularly complicated is the point. It's not terribly hard to prepare for. It can work. Um, but the question nowadays with scheme, this coordinator said is, is it so good that it justifies the trade-off that's being created where every minute that Billy spends game planning, he can't do what he does best, which is recruit. And he can't CEO and oversee other things in the program, which he's proven to be quite good at. You don't win 50 games as fast as he has in college football. I think I wrote earlier this week, he was like, I don't know, 10th. And the list is like a bunch of national championship coaches in like pace to 50 wins. Um, but Louisiana, to your point, like a lot of close wins, right? Like a lot of small margin for error. And that's really hard in the SEC where, you know, I think when you go on the road, The SEC, the reason Vegas gives the NFL teams like three points on the road is like it's worth a little something. Defensive ends get a bigger jump, right? You get these silent counts, all these things. Even if you don't believe in momentum, like it's worth three points. In the SEC, I think it's worth five or six. So you kind of have to overcome that in all these environments, and that even narrows your margin for error even more. And I just think it's time. It's time for them to change coordinators, Uh, at the end of this year, I I did report um, pretty confidently based on multiple sources that they will. Um, And I think that that's important. Then the question becomes who does Napier, the CEO, hire? Because I don't think as currently constituted, I think you're totally right. Like schematically, they're just not good enough on offense um, to justify you know, what, what Napier is doing and, and to to overcome these small margin for error that exist at the top end, right? Like they could win nine or 10 games, but honestly, if they had retained Mullen, they would be probably back to winning nine or 10 games rather quickly based on his history. Um, I think Florida's idea was we want sustainable success. That also involves occasionally beating Georgia and winning the SEC championship. And, and um, so that's, that's why he's there. Seeing that Spurrier quote that
0: made the rounds, and I can't remember where he originally said that, but um, it was that, that's pretty telling that Spurrier is saying, "Well, look around the SEC. You know, look at what Eli Drinkwitz did at Mizzou. Look at what Jimbo Fisher did at A and M in, in bringing in an offensive play caller, and you're the last one in the SEC that is doing it this way." And so when he bristled back at availability last week, and he's saying, well, you guys weren't asking these questions after Tennessee. It's like, all right, well, there's, there's, as we've talked about, there's been a material change. This is the way that this business works. And that part, that was maybe the first time where I've heard Billy say something that made me go, oh, I don't like that. I don't, if that's going to be his approach, then there's a stubbornness that's still there that can absolutely prevent you from even getting to that nine win mark. And if that's going to continue to be your mindset and you're not going to listen to anybody else until you don't, until you have nobody else that you can listen to, to me, that's troubling. What did you make of those comments? And is that Billy just trying to defend himself? Or is that really going to be like a long-term thing where there's a world in which he could possibly, possibly, I know he said that he's very likely going to hire an offensive play caller, but could he dig his heels in even more? Yeah, it's interesting. I,
2: I don't think he's going to dig his heels on in, but that's why I reported what I reported at the end of the article. I think that they'll make a change. Um, I also, to your point, was startled by the way that he kind of dug his heels in at that press conference and was like, well, you weren't asking me these questions two weeks ago. That was very Mullen-McIlwain when the pressure got to them and they didn't like being there anymore, um, the nature of that. Now, to Napier's credit, what, a day and a half later, he kind of recovered at his media availability for SEC and said, look, there's just no excuse for how we played last week. Um, And that's my, and I thought, okay, that's encouraging. But yeah, I mean, between the Spurrier, and and you know what's funny is the Spurrier comment kind of was the day before. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) You know, the ball coach is in that building with him. Um, they, they have, you know, Steve's office is down the hall, uh, when Steve's there. Um, and then I think, you know, yeah, I mean, that offensive coordinator I spoke to, I mean, he used the word lunacy, um, to, to for Napier calling his own plays. And he said, if, if you're a genius, then that's fine. You know, um, and he, he actually used Lane Kiffin as an example. Like, I don't see why Lane can't call his own plays. That's great. But, but even he doesn't, you know, even I, he, like he's, yeah. he and Josh Heupel are both at that point where those guys are considered geniuses.
0: They still defer. They still have a primary play caller despite the track record yep. that they have. So that's, what that's where I would push back on anybody saying like, yep. even if you're a genius in this day and age, it's just too right. much. It's just too much to manage. And I hope that for the sake of Florida, that Billy realizes that.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, even, um, you look at, Look at Lincoln Riley and, and Southern Cal. Like there are CEO, CEO deficiencies to him as a head coach. Yes. And how much of those are related to him calling plays? I don't know. Mike Norvell, is he going to get away with it now? And Mike will tell you that Alex Atkins calls plays most of the time. Yeah. Um, that, that Mike kind of is like the governor with the mm-hmm. veto pen. <laughs> you know, like they say, if he wants to call something different, he can. But now FSU fans – will argue with you, and th- that's fine. Like, if you want to say Mike Norvell calls plays, that's a cool FSU fan. Um, we'll see if that works for you.
0: It's it's a fair point, and, and I think it's worth remembering and, and how different the sport is now even compared to six, seven years ago. There's so mm-hmm. much irony in, in this rebuild and in what they're continuing to try to do because they had the guy who was the offensive wizard, but he couldn't recruit. Now they have the guy who can recruit. He's got the number four class coming up but he can't call plays and he might be running out of chances to be able to do it. The irony though, is that the guy bringing in more talent could be working on a quicker timeline because of where the program was at because of the last guy. And I just talked in circles because I think Florida fans are also feeling like they are talking in circles. How should fans feel about that obvious weekend now, or the, the obvious weakness Com- compared to what it was previously, two years ago, how should they feel about that now? Should it feel worse or should it feel like there's more of a chance to achieve that level of success by simply having more talent coming into the door?
2: So my position on this is that at a minimum, Napier accomplishes sort of the, the Ron Zook phenomenon of leaving the program in, good shape from a talent standpoint. Now the era of the portal is the big asterisk on that, right? Like, I don't know if when Meyer took over, if there was a transfer portal, if urban would have gotten to inherit all the players that Ron left him, including like the future national championship game, MVP quarterback and Chris leak, right. A rather nice thing to inherit. Um, Despite the, the Swamp Kings documentary. That oh my God. The,
0: despite uh, the, the Netflix doc that made him seem like Chris Leek was just this scrub that they got to be able to play on the field and just bridge the gap between <laughs> he and Tebow. My goodness. That was bad.
2: It was so bad. Um, it just wrote him out of existence and and a number of other players, uh, including uh, Jarvis Moss, you know, other guys that, that Florida kind of <laughs> just had waiting in the wings when, um, when our man Urban showed up, you know who knows how many of these kids leave because they they committed to play for Napier and the staff. I don't know. That's a fair question, but you have to feel better about it in the sense that I just spoke about, which is, look, Florida a year ago goes six and seven. Mm-hmm. Um, they had Anthony Richardson playing hurt a lot of the year and also figuring out how to play quarterback, um, and I think that combination sort of squandered what was an elite offensive line, right. A a national, like a Joe Moore award, semifinalist line. Very good. um, With an all American on it. I think they were 19th in total offense last year. They were 13th in yards per play. So, you know, I wrote last December that I was worried that that would deceive Napier into thinking that his play calling was just awesome. Like, Hey, I rolled in the sec and was top 15 in yards per play, you know? And it's like, well, You know, that offensive line and Anthony Richardson can make you look pretty nice at times. Um, And and Dan didn't leave much in the cupboard. Florida had the least blue chip recruits defensively on a roster uh, since the 24-7 ranking system was invented. Um, That will not be the case if Napier is dismissed after three seasons, right? Um, Right now, Florida has 21 of the 24 spots on the two deep where there is at least one freshman – or sophomore. Um, So they're the youngest team in the SEC in terms of who's playing. Um, And there's only one senior on that two deep. Uh, So I think that they'll be okay if they move on in a year. Um, But based on the conversations I had, you know, I think these boosters are certainly very hopeful that that won't be necessary. Now, if you look at Florida's schedule, the back half of this season, and then into next season, it's going to be – difficult for Napier to weather that with the noise. And that was the last piece of the article, Connor was social media in these sort of current era echo chambers um, that get going and how, just how hard it is to stop that snowball. Once it, once it starts last one for you and you kind of just spoke on it, but
0: the, how do you think this finishes out this season? Um, because Saturday against South Carolina, it feels so massive knowing what awaits, knowing that Georgia, LSU, Florida State, those games are still on the schedule. How do you think this plays out? Do you have a record prediction based on what you've seen from Florida so far?
2: Yeah, look, if LSU were coming to Gainesville, the way that this young defense has played um, and and as horrible as LSU is defensively, particularly at stopping the run, like I would think – maybe Florida has a chance to steal that game. I don't think that that's the case because they have to go to tiger stadium. And I don't really care what time the game is. I just think, um, you know, there's nothing we've seen from Graham Mertz that says he can go out and win a game 40 to 35. Uh, And that's not a knock on Graham Mertz, by the way. I've been saying that in my articles, like it is not Graham Mertz's fault that he's showing that he's a really good game manager and that's it. Billy Napier did not do what he should have done, and go and get a game changer in the portal at quarterback. Um, he got a game manager, and and that's what Florida's getting on the field. And honestly, Murch has been better than pretty much everybody thought he would be, including myself. Yep. Um, they need to win Saturday. Uh, South Carolina can't block air. I mean. Their offensive line is the worst SEC offensive line I've seen in quite some time. And I've seen some Vanderbilt lines that are very bad. Uh, they give up nine sacks and 24 pressures to North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know Spencer Rattler is really tough. And hats off to that kid, man. He, he is showing himself to be an NFL-type dude. Uh, but the GameCrafts can't run the ball. Florida has studs all over the field on defense for the first time in a while. Like you watch their linebackers and it looks like Florida linebackers for the first time in what five, six years where they're fast. They move sideline to sideline. So if the Gators can run the ball at all, I think they've got a chance to win Saturday and they need to, if they want to go to a bowl game, they'll, they'll beat Arkansas in the swamp that Arkansas team is not equipped to beat them in Gainesville. Um, And then the Florida state game will be fascinating you know, which we don't FSU has been very inconsistent from quarter to quarter this season. So which Seminoles team shows up now, if FSU is 11 and zero when they get to Gainesville, you know, logic suggests that Florida state will find a way to win that game. Um, so I'm leaning towards, towards five and seven or six and six with this game being, as you mentioned, the huge coin flip, um, because I just, you know, unfortunately for Florida, they have to go to Missouri and I don't see Missouri losing to them in, in Como. Um, not the way that Missouri, especially on the offensive line is just so physical and good.
0: I think that's a perfectly fair assessment. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. Neil, uh, great stuff, man. We'll, uh, we'll do this again real soon. Appreciate it. Hey, appreciate you, Connor. Thanks.
1: Lat of the week will, um, you want to start or should I start? Um, I can go ahead and start. This one's going to be a pretty obvious. It's almost a walkover. It's going to be Jaden Daniels after we saw out of what we Homer. saw out of him. What Homer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's honestly, man. If if not for this specific quarterback, being an LSU fan would be horrible right now. It would be the worst thing in the world. Um, him and Joe Burrow put them off to the side. Any other quarterback in LSU history right now, this would be a disaster, lost season. Um, but what he did last week, coming back from the injury on the road against the Mizzou team that at the time, you know, it was a back and forth game and they very much could have won that game. Um, and as much as i talked about the play calling, it really was the ability of Jaden Daniels to go down and score twice after the defense just completely fell asleep when they needed to stop yet again. Um, but the thing that's crazy is, you know, looking at his improvement from last year um, and I'll do a little bit of a Mike Denbrock thing. I was talking about him the other day as it concerns like uh, Spencer um, Desmond Ritter, sorry. And the offense that they had at Cincinnati. And I actually was pretty happy with this hire, Whenever it was made, I was definitely in a minority and I understand why, because he had struggled so much and had basically been exiled from Notre Dame to Cincinnati, Brian Kelly's old stop. It was kind of like a, okay, you go to the kid's table at Cincinnati, figure it out. And obviously he led that offense to prolific things with Desmond Ritter. And you saw kind of a Desmond Ritter-esque player last year in, in Jaden Daniels. But this year has been completely different. The issue, the whole point of that offense is to not turn the ball over. And therefore, you do not take risks. There's a shot plays code against James Franklin. Um, and so point being, what they've done this year is realized, okay, just playing safe, not turning the ball over, is not going to win us a single SEC game with this defense. What we need to do is completely spread it out. And if you look at the fact that he's already passed for more touchdowns, this year than at any point of his what was it five year football career, it's insane. His air yards per attempt is twelve point five. Yeah, this is a dude who's playing against again. You know, not the not the uh, not quite the Alabamas and the Auburns yet, but SEC competition. And this is a quarterback that again. This season against Mississippi State, there was a guy on college game day saying that Jaden Daniels needed to be benched. I understood it a little bit last year okay, because you didn't know what you had. After that FSU win that I saw in person, or FSU loss, I mean, that I saw in person that everybody but him was a spy. I was like, this guy is out there fighting for his life, trying to win. And we've seen it's almost like a Spencer Rattler type vibe where he was this highly rated quarterback. He was like, oh, this diva guy. He comes to the SEC and he realizes, okay, I now have to make my money. And he is getting a lot of looks for NFL scouts. Obviously, he's still pretty uh, spindly. Probably needs to get on some of that gumbo that uh, Zion's on. Um, but he needs to go. He it's uh, gumbo with rice. Actually, you were right about that quote. I, re- I wouldn't really listen to it the other day. Gumbo no rice loses weight. Gumbo with rice gains weight. I owe oh, you an apology. Um, so he needs to get the gumbo with rice because he's still like 180 pounds. Somehow, it's insane. But anyway, all I'm saying with that is that to be a risk-averse quarterback, um, and change to a gunslinger to be a being a guy who is a diva and go to a guy who take some of the most ridiculous cartoonish hits in the world and to get up and just get right back up and not cry, not pout, do all that. I think he's grown up a lot as a leader and as a person, it's been really, really cool to see. And regardless of like what's happened in this season, I think that that Mizzou game kind of cemented the kind of player he is playing through the injury. So yeah, I just want to give him his flowers now in that, you know, I don't necessarily think he's going to win the Heisman. I think this team is too flawed to win enough games. I don't think he's going to win the West. Um, but that's not his fault. And I think that he's played 120% as well to do that. And this is the first LSU team, maybe also 2013, that I can think of where I'm like, wow, we're really letting the offense down. Um, so it's, it's a tough, tough position to be in. But I think that if we have a shot to do anything, it's because of this guy specifically. So I, it's, it's super cool. It's one of the best storylines in the SEC this year so far
0: to Mm -hmm. to see the maturation of Jaden Daniels. If you're actually watching him, if you didn't just write off LSU because of the loss against Florida state and the loss against Ole Miss, but if you're actually watching the maturation of this guy, knowing what he has done to get to this point of his career, it's been fun to watch. And look, I'll, I'll admit I had moments, plenty of moments. I asked Josh Bate right after the Florida state game, is this offense better suited to be led by a Garrett Nussmeyer because he has that gunslinger mindset. And when Stanford, Steve, that's who you're referencing, who called him out on college game day by saying mm-hmm. Garrett Nussmeyer could go into this game midway through if they're losing to Mississippi State or something like that. I'll admit that there is a part of me that is still really intrigued by the player that Garrett Nussmeyer is and the offense that I thought LSU could have with him. They just have it with Jayden Daniels, though. And they have it in a more versatile way. It won't be better than this. I'm here to it tell will. you right now. It won't. This is you're, the best. offense so spoiled right now if you're rooting for change you're ridiculous yes you're, you're exactly right because he is doing everything that we thought oh man like what if what if they could really tap into this and what if they really were able to 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 have this this group of receivers test everybody in, on the outside what if they could truly find that guy and they have it and Jaden is that guy, and he also gives you the rushing ability and the toughness I will never question after seeing what he went through. I know we've talked about him a lot. There are probably people that are sick of hearing about him. They're like, hey, he's on a two-loss team. Who really cares? There are other quarterbacks you
1: need to give flowers to. Now, giving flowers to Jaden Daniels is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and I'll say this too, Carson Beck as well. I think he's playing his yeah. butt off. He is a guy that I doubted um, just because I think Vandergrift looks cool and I'm stupid. So I I, I really like – I watched you know the South Carolina game in person, and part of that is new offensive coordinator and Mike Bobo, who I think probably shares more of the blame than – he has, but I, I really—it's been really cool to see Carson Beck do what he's done at the end of that Auburn game, throughout the entirety of that Kentucky game, brother. I mean, he was unstoppable, and so yeah, it, it's there's a couple of guys in the SEC that have really like changed the narrative that way, and I think I think that's really cool. And, and the sky's the limit for Georgia, obviously, because they now have almost almost gotten back to where they were offensively last year. And by the way, Carson Beck doesn't need to be part of the Kaisman conversation to be still considered
0: a really good quarterback, because yeah. I mean, statistically, a guy that's got 12 touchdowns in the midway point of the season. Probably not going to be in that conversation. I realized we talked about this kind of exact same thing with Stetson Bennett last year and the lack of, you know, the cumulative numbers. But then if you broke down what it looked like against top 25 competition, maybe there's a world in which Carson Beck follows that. I don't necessarily think he will, but he's been awesome. He's been really, really good. I never sold my Carson Beck stock. Still have all that. I thought about it, but I didn't sell it.
1: And, the- and also, Brock Bowers needs those flowers. He needs to go to New York because he completely deserves it. So zero Heisman votes for Carson Beck this year. Let's pile all of those into yep. Brock Bowers, and then Carson Beck will be around. Like he'll have time to get his Heisman stuff. Brock Bowers will never see again. Nothing wrong with that. In any 300%. form, one hundred percent.
0: Yes, in any form, uh, human or not human. Lad of the week for me is Connor Bedard. We're going hockey. Yeah. Uh, don't know correct if we don't know if we've made a lot of hockey references uh, on this. Wait, what did you say? The correct spelling of Connor. Oh, yes, the correct spelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, two ends in an a no. That's the only way to go, obviously. Yeah. Connor McDavid, another guy that spells his name correctly. Um, he might be the next Connor McDavid. He might be the next Sidney Crosby, who he faced opening night in his career. 18 year old gets the Blackhawks a dub, looked awesome, had an assist, almost forgot his stick before the game, was able to make it work. <laughs> Look, besides the fact that this man spells his name correctly, he has totally reinvigorated a fan base that was very depressed watching the end of the Taves Kane arrow. and I know no people that are listening to this actually care about this. And they're like, "Hey, the Blackhawks won three titles in the in the 2010s. Whatever, get over it. I get it. I just think it's cool in general when we see a guy come in as a number one pick, and it instantly changes the entire mood of the franchise. I mean, just instantly. New Orleans had some of that, obviously, with Zion. Bryce Harper with the Nationals, Andrew Luck with the Colts, probably a million other examples that I'm leaving out. Even Strasburg with the Nationals, that was incredible to watch when he was coming up and how highly regarded he was. On a smaller scale, Luther Burden with Mizzou and what he's done this year to to feel like new things are possible offensively. It's just a fun thing to see with an 18-year-old kid in one of the biggest sports markets in the U.S. getting a chance like this where they – if you are good, they they will (laughs) – they will put you on that pedestal. They absolutely will. And so, yeah, I'm happy also selfishly that my dad, probably watching every Blackhawks game from heaven, he's got a reason to be dialed in this year. And I think about that a lot with Connor Bedard. So big things ahead for the 18-year-old. Loved, loved, loved seeing that debut. My buddies my buddies were texting about hockey yesterday. Can't tell you the last time my buddies and I were texting about hockey. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's what one player can do for you. Change a change
1: franchise, change the world. I love how I said Jaden Daniels and you were like Homer and you are like and now I'm the Chicago Blackhawks. <laughs> <laughs> like, hold on, oh um, yeah, no, I, I I need. I think this is finally the year I'll get into hockey. <laughs> We're finally, we finally just turned into just two dudes doing a podcast. We're like, I'll tell you my favorite players. These are my favorite <laughs> team. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, like I, was, I think this is actually the year I get into hockey because the company that I work for, like, uh, like for my day job is got a lot of hockey rights that they're accumulating. Um, we were just out there. John was out there in Vegas and brought me back like a game used puck. And so, yeah, I think this is the year. So I, I, I think I'm going to start actually like following hockey. So I'll probably be texting you as well with very stupid questions. Get ready. Tough sport to follow. Tough sport to follow. If you're if you're
0: not totally dialed in, I'll be honest. That's that's gone on the back burner since since doing this job. But who knows? Kind of is Gonna bring me back in here for it. If you have not, leave us a five star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the for, the app formerly known as Twitter at the SDS Pod at Set Down South at CG Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.